It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast, episode 153. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-host, Cohort. Cohort? Jared Bajoris, everybody. Tag team champion with your boy. What's going on? Throw me under the the bus, hey, Ed, with my past coke usage. It's it, we're already at the witching hour to start the show. The so witching this is, hour. This and it's going to be witching hours. This my mom this will week. never hear this, but just to clarify, we we're joking about my past Coca Cola drinking habit, not cocaine. <laughs> yes, but your Definitely boy, the J. Hey Ed, as I got to do, is as pumped as ever. Just because he was just on my Twitter feed, I'm going to shout out an old classic. The Austrian Oak himself is pumped as Arnold in his prime, baby, for what's real, 153. The Pulsation Nation is here. Let's go, hey, Ed. That's right. We have a terrible show lined up for you guys this week. We're not even trying anymore. Terribly it's, good. It's it's a mess. I don't, I'm don't. i just being super negative this week just for a change, <laughs> so we'll see how this works. But, uh, but no, we have a good show for you guys. We got a double dose of wrestling stuff with... The WWE biography on Jake the Snake Roberts, along with a brand new episode of WWE Rivals, all about The Undertaker versus Mankind. And also a double dose of the movies that made us this week. Uh, The J picked 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And surprisingly enough, I picked 1988's Colors. So going to be kind of a nice dichotomy this week with movies. And of course, we're going to be talking about some goofs and much, much more. So let's just get into it. The J uh, coming up March 5th uh, is going to be the AEW Revolution pay-per-view. Uh, it takes place in San Francisco, California, which is also the first pay-per-view to ever be held in California uh, by AEW. So we're going to run down the matches here and talk about the card a little bit. So uh, this is what we have uh, so far as of recording on Tuesday, but uh, we have a four-way tag team match for the AEW World Tag Team Titles. The Guns, Austin and Colton, will be defending against the team of Anthony Bowens and Max Caster, the Acclaimed, and Jay Lethal, Jeff Jarrett, and also another team that is yet to be determined. So, uh, I don't really think we're going to see a title change here, uh, and if we do, it's probably going to be the Acclaimed that are going to end up with the belts, but. I don't know of any team coming in unless they just throw FTR in there or something like that. But yeah, not sure. Yeah, I think the guns will keep because I actually they're growing on me a bit. You know, I'm not going to blow smoke and act like, you know, like, oh, hey, yeah, I'm, these guys are going to be sleepers. But from from where they were, it's like one of those things you look at like three months ago, even or something to where they are now. At least they're getting some TV time. They're getting some character development. I mean, they have the freaking belts. You know, they got the belts off the acclaimed, one of the most popular tag teams, if not D right now in AEW. So, you know, they're, they're rolling pretty good. And I think they're going to stick with that and keep the feud between the guns and the acclaimed going for a, a while, the way it seems. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't see foresee them losing the, the straps. Also, we have the trios championship is up for grabs uh, as the elite, the team of Kenny Omega, Nick Jackson and Matt Jackson are going to defend against the House of Blacks, Malachi Black, Brody King and Buddy Matthews. Um, yeah, cool, I guess. I mean, the, the whole thing with the trios championship is like they're really not dedicated to doing much with these. I mean, they have really good matches for them, but like everything just feels so fucking random with it all the time. 
Uh, so, like, yeah, I'm sure the match will be fine. I don't like the House of Black. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it'll be good enough. But, yeah, it's just not. It's weird to not be excited about a match like this, but I'm not. Yeah, because in ring-wise, I think it's going to live up to the hype. But, like you said, storyline-wise, which to me, we, we always say it's a, it's a big deal. And the House of Black, I'm with you, is kind of just a little bit off. You know, I mean, they're they're kind of different for AEW. They're the you know WWE is has consistently always had kind of that dark, you know, supernatural, if you will, kind of character. The Undertaker kind of giving the torch to Bray Wyatt over there in a way, and and this is the AEW version of that. We, we've even compared them when uh, the Judgment Day was first you know, uh, coming yeah. out like oh, the judgment day is kind of like the house of black and AEW a little bit. So yeah, it's just, it's just not my cup of tea as far as storyline stuff goes, but in ring wise, all these dudes can go, you know, Brody King brings a unique aspect with his size. Buddy Matthews is a beast. Malachi does his thing. Uh, we said we, we definitely liked Malachi from the start, but he was a lot better in the past as even Tommy end when he first started in his NXT run. He, he's not been as good as that, in my opinion, and that was a long time ago, but he's still capable. So um, in ring action wise, I think it's going to be good. And, and like you said at the outset of bringing up this match, hey, Ed, I'd have to say the trios championship in AEW kind of adds a gimmick layer to being able to get guys on the card and do six mans. That's yeah. really what it is. Like, like you yeah. said, there's not really any deep, any storytelling to it yet. But it, it is an excuse to have some some really good six man like fast paced heavy spot matches in AEW. Yeah, I agree with you there. So uh, we have a three way for the AEW Women's World Championship as Jamie Hader defends against Soraya and or Soraya and Ruby Soho. Yeah, not a fan of this one either. Uh, not big on it. The, the, like Soraya has been a mess since they brought her in. That I just think it would be a better match to not have her in it at all. I'd probably agree with that. We, we were never big, uh, us talking wrestling for all these years on on three ways. We agree with that, with the triple threats. Uh, we'll see. You know, they might be able to do something. We never know. But, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not too excited about this particular match. Although, with this being brought up, I must say that Jamie Hayter was somebody that, you know, again, it's another one of those dude, things we a few were, months ago. I wasn't big on her. We talked a lot of shit. But now we she kind of turned me. We were there for her debut. Exactly. Yep. And no one knew who she was. Yeah. But like, but yeah, I'm with she's you. I like her. Yeah, she's good. You know, I'll give her credit there. But yeah, I don't think it's, and I don't think the belts are going to change hands. That would be a monumental mistake, I think, at this point. Yeah, I think Hater keeps. Uh, next up is a singles match where the Jericho Appreciation Society are banned from ringside as Jericho faces off with Ricky Starks. This has been kind of a fun TV feud. I expect it to be just a decent match. Uh, Ricky needs to win, though, for sure. Uh, but, you know, other than that, I mean, I, if it's not to put over Ricky Starks, then I don't really understand what the point of even having it on the show is. I, I completely agree. I think that's why they're doing it. This is the kind of position in the company Jericho should have. You know, he he kind of created somewhat of a new star with action Andretti doing something like this. Yeah. Even Ricky Starks was teaming up with for weeks uh, as baby faces. So, uh, yeah, this is hopefully a, a kind of highlight for Ricky starts to go against a legend that is Chris Jericho and hopefully they put on a really good singles match. I do like the fact that the Jericho appreciation society's banned. I'm sure they'll do something with a run in towards the end. Cause that's just the way it is, but this gives them a, a good portion of, of the match to really just focus on wrestling and work. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. Uh, unfortunately we have the AEW TNT championship up for grabs as Samoa Joe faces off against Wardlow. 
I think the ship has sailed on this. Yeah. I, I, I don't like Wardlow at all, and I don't even like Joe anymore in AEW. I just think it's just a waste to have these two on the card at this point. I don't expect this to be anything special or anything that we haven't seen a bunch of times before. Um, yeah, I'm just completely bored with both of these guys right now. It's it's almost pointless that they're on pay-per-view over a lot of the guys in this company. Yeah, it's a shame. We, we, we talked about it within our AEW talk on the What's Real podcast month after month with Wardlow and that they were on thin ice, Tony Khan in particular, doing the booking and the storyline stuff, that th- this guy could have been a top homegrown AEW star and they had to do it right, and they really hadn't. Uh, I think he did get injured within there, didn't he, Ed? So that kind of throws things I think off. So, like, yeah. yeah, I get that. But nonetheless, uh, it's a shame because we had high hopes for Wardlow. And, of course, you know, plenty of time. Wardlow's a young guy. Uh, he could bounce back. That's one of the things about pro wrestling. If you stick around, timing can work in your favor, and, and you could get another run. But right now, I think they dropped the ball on Wardlow's booking, and I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm hoping that it's one of those things where we're kind of talking down on it here in the preview and, and they get bring it because Yeah, that's possible. Other than that, uh, I couldn't say it better myself uh, than your breakdown. Uh, we have the Texas death match between Hangman Adam Page and John Moxley. This should be a lot of fun. Uh, they've been kind of together in storyline now for a while. So uh, I'm curious to see where, what they do with this because I don't think this is going to be the end of this feud, but it's going to be something that furthers along the storyline. But I'm curious to see how they do it. That's the thing about it. They've wrestled a decent amount in AEW's his- history, these two. So it's not a fresh matchup, but these guys always bring it and they have good chemistry. And and we, we mentioned this when you got a matchup that the guys kind of work and we've seen numerous variations of them in the ring. It's always good on a big show to throw in a, a, a gimmick, you know, to see what they can do in kind of a different atmosphere. So yep. Texas death matches what it is uh, odds on John Moxley uh, showing color hand. Uh, I don't know the odds, but I'm saying it's 100%. <laughs> That's what I was hoping you would say, yeah, because I'm with you. And, of course, we have the main event, the 60-minute Ironman match for the AEW World Championship between MJF defending against Brian Danielson. Uh, this should be pretty good. Uh, you know, I, I think that they've been building this up really well on TV. It's one of the more interesting things going on in AEW, so I'm very curious to see how this all turns out in the end. I got to say, hey, Ed, like a a lot of people, uh, you might say it's kind of a polarizing match in ways, especially I would guess the the modern fan and and generations behind us and and younger people with their attention spans and things. So that would be interesting because the AEW crowd is is kind of a younger crowd overall, I would think to say uh, in hardcore. But I've always enjoyed Iron Man matches. You know, when I was younger, I was kind of put off by them because I wasn't, you know, like that much of a fan that understood psychology yet you know when i was a lot younger like but brett brett and sean of course that was great and, and it could go on and on with naming really good iron man matches that have taken place in our time span of being wrestling fans so i'm really looking forward to this i, I like iron man matches i want to see what mjf can do in 60 minutes and we all know brian danielson's brian danielson i mean that's see, all i gotta I'm, say about that i'm more curious about what they actually do in this than the fact that it's i i'm particularly don't care for Iron Man matches uh, because I don't think, I think a lot of people that have them aren't really the type of guys that should. Uh, Brian Danielson exactly is the type of guy that should. And I'm curious to kind of see what kind of story they pull off with MJF in this as well. Yeah. That's so like point. there, there is interesting storyline related stuff to this that I think is very cool. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see because like it, it is a tricky thing too. It's not just a, even with really good guys, it's not always just a home run. So it depends on how they do it. But like, because Danielson's in it, I have a lot of faith that it's going to be pretty good. That's what I'm, I'm thinking and hoping. Uh, but I think this could be a really good match to, to end the show if they do it right. And as far as picking a prediction for the winner, uh, I think this is another one that the champion keeps. I think MJF goes over in the end. All right, let's let's just go through real quick here. Uh, who who wins the J, the Elite or House of Black? Uh, I'm thinking the Elite keeps. Same, yeah, that's what I think. We already said both said Jamie Hader. Uh, I think Ricky Starks will beat Jericho. I think they'll do the right thing. I think there. so, and that's what I'm hoping for. Um, I'm guessing Wardlow is going to win back the TNT Championship. I'm thinking the same thing. I was going to say that. Uh, I think uh, Hangman wins the Texas Death Match. I'll go different on that, uh, Moxley, because I, I think that's 50-50. I can go either way. We both said the guns are going to keep, and in the main event, I yeah, MJF is going to keep the belt, but it's going to be interesting to see what they do. I, I have a funny feeling that this one might not be over with here. Like They might continue on. Which I wouldn't mind. No, I'd be fine with it because that's they, the they, thing with well with the AEW setup is uh, which I kind of like. We've talked about that, and it's and it's a good contrast to WWE schedule with their monthly pay per views. There's that chunk of time to build up TV and build up the next pay per view. So, uh, you know, there's some stuff they can do for sure. Yeah, they they can always do some sort of a like say for example like a cage match rematch on Dynamite, on Dynamite or something too because they yep. yeah and, the, and then they have weeks to move it along to the next feud so. That is why I agree with you. I think that gives them kind of a benefit to being able to do that. They're not so pressured. Uh, you know, like you could have a champion, have like a quick two-week feud on Dynamite with some random person, you know, whatever, and then move on from there, like before you even try to do anything else because you always have that bumper time in between the pay-per-views. It, it matters. So, But we are up against our very first commercial break, and whenever we come back, we're going to be talking WWE's biography on Jake the Snake Roberts, and WWE Rivals on Undertaker versus Mankind. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we could hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timothy James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. It's the What's Real team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. And we're back, and it is time to get into the world of professional wrestling. First up is with the WWE A&E biography on Jake the Snake Roberts. Uh, if you guys listen to the show, you've already heard us do like the Dark Side of the Ring that was on Jake Roberts and his family, specifically about Grizzly Smith. Uh, they touch on a lot of that stuff here. So obviously, if any of the things about you know child abuse and pedophilia and things like that are a problem, you might not want to listen to the segment. Um, anyway, yeah, they kind of go through all this again and, you know, I get it. Like you kind of have to do that stuff whenever you go through Jake's career. Um, they did, however, and 
this is also, I think, one of those things that Jay, because we said this is like more for just like your average person, not necessarily like hardcore wrestling fans. Um, but like, there's probably a lot of people finding out a lot of shit about Jake for the first time. <laughs> yeah, like, people were like, I had no idea. Yeah, people that had no idea are listening to this, like, what the fuck? His dad was a pedophile. Yes. And, and his, his, you know, Jake the Snake's mom was his dad's daughter and victim, essentially, as well. So it's it's a pretty fucked up story all around. Um, they do. The thing that was cool about this one is that it did feature a lot of Jake's kids talking about him for, you know, yeah, his daughter from, from the first uh, time. But the, the very famous th- that we've brought up on the podcast, of course, before uh, Beyond the Mat. Yep. And she was uh, like heavy set back then because she didn't look as, uh, as similar. So I'd like kind of put that together and then they showed the footage. And I'm like, oh, it's definitely the daughter that was in that. Yeah, and they go into a lot of that stuff. They they talk to his sister Robin, uh, obviously Rock and Robin, um, who would like fill in certain details of the story. See, that's the problem is like these kids were all kind of split up with weird segments of the family and shit. So like they all aren't aware of everything. So they all kind of fill in their details as well um, about the story. So there's a lot of the stuff on here. Um, you know, that that we were talking about. Of course, they do cover a lot of Jake's career and his work. And that's the stuff that kind of saved it for me because, like, I already knew about all this stuff uh, in his life. And, you know, and I get why they have it in there. I'm not saying they shouldn't. Um, But seeing the wrestling portion of it's kind of what I wanted to see. I thought they did a pretty good job with that stuff as well. Um, You know, and overall, like, I thought this was a pretty strong episode considering, like, I knew most of this stuff, but I, there was still a lot of stuff in here that was new to me, new footage, new talking heads, stuff like that, enough to keep me interested. Uh, and I know that that's been a previous complaint about these from us in the past. So, like, this one didn't have that problem. So, And, and I felt like the NWO one last week was kind of similar. So, I'm like, two weeks in, it seems like they've changed enough with these t- so far to make them more interesting or kind of update them and make them better than what they were putting out the previous two seasons. I agree. Yeah. It's not the cookie cutter, just glossy WWE centric revisionist history kind of storytelling. We always talk about, I mean, these, these are real documentaries and, and I think that's, that's what the partnership with A&E is about. I mean, A&E has had that biography uh, program for, for a long time. It's a very successful, very popular thing. So, yep. you know, combine that with the world of wrestling. I'm sure that was the original pitch and, and it definitely works, especially as you, as you broke down, Hey, and if they're doing them like this and I agree, there was a lot more stuff in here. Uh, I was a, a lot deeper to Jake personally than the dark side of the ring piece, or, you know, we referenced last week as well, that there was also the uh, resurrection of Jake, the snake, the, the popular documentary that's on streaming that the DDP was involved in, in his recovery process, uh, which was cool to watch, but this is a completely different, you know, animal because it covers his entire career to present. And, and Jake himself really helps this because Jake's in a good place now. And he was, he's just a character, man. And he was cracked. You know, he always cracked. We always said that Jake like cracks me up. Like he's like fishing with his sons, just making quips from the beginning. You know, like talking shit on his one kid, like you know, yeah, fishing wise and stuff. 
I mean, he doesn't seem like he's a bad guy. You know what I mean? He had a lot of fucking problems and did a bunch well, of terrible it's, shit. It's like anything it's, with addiction. We've talked about that too, hey Ed, where you know when when the, the person and people in the you know the talking heads and this and all that have, have spoke about that too. I know DDP even says that he, he he specifically states that sober Jake and the current Jake would hate the drunk Jake. You know, yeah. addict Jake, and that's that's what it is. When you're an addict, it's it's the chemical talking, you know, over the person. So, um, you know, that's what seems to be Jake's thing is like if he can stay sober, he is a pretty good person and everything. And that's what you see in this. And you know, one thing from the the, the beginning that kind of stood out, I th I think I remember something about it like briefly in a in a past piece on Jake, but they really hammered it, pun intended, I guess I can say, as him wanting to be an architect. That that yeah. was his original big thing. And because of his relationship with his father, Grizzly Smith, who, who was a, a famous professional wrestler for his time, he in in, in their you know button heads, he's he just said, you know what, I'm gonna be a bigger wrestling star than you one day, and 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 that was a good part too. Hey, at the the very outset of Jake the Snake's career, where they were like, he he was big, but he was lanky and had a weird build and a really weird look for wrestling at that time, and he really struggled the first couple of years, but he kept coming back and he kept learning his craft. And he, to me, is an example of a guy. And, and this isn't f very often. You'll see what I mean here. I think you'll kind of agree with me on this. There were a lot of guys in that 80s era WWF stuff, right? Like during the, the major expansion, like when guys became huge stars uh, from territories, uh, they would literally bring their gimmicks in and fucking just, you know, like be part of the machine. And that's what it was. Uh, Jake was a guy that had seasoning, um, had a name, but that's really it. Like they were kind of taking a chance on him, but then when they brought him in, they packaged him as Jake the Snake, the, and then his promo started to get better and stuff. Like they were decent, but like this, it was just like the right timing with everything. It's kind of like whenever you draft a quarterback or something and he sits for like a year or two and then you put him in and he just starts killing shit. And it's like, yeah, because he wasn't ready. And now he's ready. Jake wasn't ready. And then almost like by 87, like maybe not even a full year after being there, everything was clicking for Jake. And he became the star in that machine. It wasn't the guy was really good and brought into the machine and just took off. Like he came... And was kind of in the same way that DiBiase was. Like, DiBiase was really good outside of WWE. But then coming in and getting that gimmick was the one thing that, like, you know, shot them into superstardom. Yeah, because you had to work. That was the foundation. If you, know, you you start with being able to to be a really good worker, and then when you're calling into the WWF of, of, of that time, if you got a, a good gimmick or you could get yourself over with whatever gimmick they gave you, you would have that foundation as a worker, no matter what, you know, cause all the guys like think that that's one thing I thought about beforehand, like looking back on, on some of these things and, and take just a random guy like uh, Steve Kern portrayed Skinner. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, we're coming up in 92, we're like 13 years old watching wrestling, talking about it. And you're like, Oh, Skinner's terrible. And then you go back and watch it. And like, in particular, the opening match of Tuesday in Texas comes to mind. Cause of course it's Bret Hart. But yep. him and Bret Hart just crush it. You know, it's one of those ones where I remember well, Bobby Heenan like, and this is only the first match. And then you, re 
realize that Steve Kern had a whole other career. That's that's Florida. why. Yeah, that's why I'm comparing ones. It. Like, yep. So he was good. Like, yeah. you know what I mean. And it that's what just, I'm saying. And, and that's yeah. where they. And, and that's what he talked about. He's like, you know, Vince McMahon brought me in. He said, you know, we're going to give you these these long trunks with the snake on them, and we're going to give you these, you know, practically knee hide snake boots. And you're going to have to travel and take care of a python, which that was another cool little tidbit, which you kind of think about, but you don't truly do until you hear Jake talking about it, where it's like, hey, bro, you want the, the paycheck? Because that's another thing he said. He's like, you know, I'm trying to think if I'm going to definitely jump in the WWF or not with Vince in our first meeting. And he's like, I've never seen that many zeros thrown at me in my life. And I was in, you know, so, yeah. but but the catch with all those zeros to my point was that he had, it was his responsibility, all these, the traveling they did in the eighties the and nineties for him to take this fucking Python with them. And he's like, yeah, it broke sinks and toilets and I had to get used to it. I'd put it in the bathtub with water and all this shit. I'm like, dude, the, dude, this motherfucker's in the eighties, just traveling with a Python. It's, they all had to do that shit. It's like, yeah, the champions, fuck, you always take the belt. Well, no, Jake always had the fucking snake. The Bulldogs always had Matilda. Yeah, they fucking, had the, the dog. Uh, Coco Beware always had Frankie. Like, they had to take that shit with them places. Like, they, yeah. which I couldn't imagine doing. Like, how the fuck do you, do, like, you got to get on planes and shit and we take the fucking animals. snake and shit. Like, it, that had to be the weirdest thing ever. Um, especially when you realize what these dudes, like, out of the three people I just named, Coco Beware was fine. Jake was a, a crazy person that was on a shitload of drugs for a long time. Uh, the Bulldogs were no fucking saint. Uh, Dynamite was a lunatic. Um, yeah, Bulldog was on more steroids than Hercules. Yeah, and these are the the responsible guys to be like, all right, bring the animal with you. Like, <laughs> yeah. who the fuck thought that was a good idea? Like, it's it's hard to believe, but like, but wrestling really was. A completely different animal. Oh, we always then. say the circus. Yeah. Um. It, but it was cool though too. Of course, they reiterate Jake's promo style, where he, you know, he can do the soft voice, like he doesn't have to yell yeah, and whisper, shit like that. Basically. Uh, the one thing that I really enjoyed in here, because this is just me personally, is when they get into his whole heel feud in '92 uh, with you know, like Undertaker and Macho Man and all that shit. Because to me. And it's crazy to say this because Jake had a really massive career. My favorite Jake Roberts is fucking heel 92 Jake Roberts, like fucking with Macho Man. And that, like he was so fucking good at that time period, man. Like that, it, like it was cool for years. I don't it, it, like it had to be by design, but it's like he was like this weird baby face who was like not a heel, but like kind of like a. Like a demented kind of. They, fucking they dude. said he was. He was definitely one of the first WWF anti-hero kind of yes. characters like that. Like it wasn't the cut and dry good guy bad guy heel baby face. Yes, and but when they turned him heel, it like was the boost to that kind of like sinister character that was like, oh shit. And I mean, dude, remember how they did all this shit? It was like they they didn't show everything on here, but like. Him fucking attacking Macho Man's wedding with the snake. Him attacking Macho Man with the snake. Him fucking closing the Undertaker's fucking hand in the coffin and shit. Uh, that whole segment then ended up eventually being scrapped because he ended up walking out. But remember when they did that shit where it was uh, Warrior feuding with uh, Papa Shango. Undertaker? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or no, 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 no. It was Papa Shango. You're right. 
and they, they like enlisted Jake to kind of like show the warrior like how to deal with the dark side, but he turns on him. And but they never got to do anything with it because Warrior fucking left. Um, but like, yeah, like Jake was doing some really cool shit as a heel at that point, man. Like they were, and dude, there was 92 was a very weird year. Like when you think about it, because that was like squeaky clean family WWF time. Right. But then they're doing the, the angle where macho man's getting bit by the fucking Cobra. They're doing the whole macho man and fucking flare angle where like fucking flares with Liz yeah, and shit. He's having like, an affair with his wife. Yeah. Like there was, they were, it There's was a little more, edge to it. Y- yes. And like even that little edge though. And I know that you're probably a little biased too. Cause I know that's the year you started getting into wrestling, but even yeah. just looking back at it, but like unbiased, like, 92 is one of the more interesting years that I can ever remember the WWF having because of that stuff. Flair. Hogan was Well, I was going to say, with, with Sid that. was there. Yeah, I was like, the, they, the roster. We always say the yeah. 92 WWF roster. If you look at the 92 Royal Rumble, I mean, it's a who's who. Yeah, I mean, you, you just off the top of my head, the people we just named, and then you got guys like Brett and Michaels and fucking the Legion of Doom. And everybody and, in their uh, prime to boot. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Bulldog was still there. I mean, dude, 92 is the year you got Bulldog and Brett at fucking SummerSlam. Yep. Uh, there was just some shit that year that was just, the the company was changing, but like also getting this wild influx of talent and shit. So they had a lot of cool stuff going on. And like Jake was definitely a massive part of that until he would eventually leave. Yeah. Just, and just while we're here, hey, Ed, cause we, I think we spoke about it before on what's real. But because that was always a, such a huge visual and young wrestling fans, because I, I, I forget, was it uh, not not the real nerdy dude, uh, Rosenberg? What's his name? Rosenberg. Oh, yeah. 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 The radio host. Uh, he talks yep. about like how it like scared the shit out of him when the Cobra bit Macho Man and everything, because it was like for those that don't know, it was it was real. It was just de-venomized, but yep. he let the snake bite him. And Macho Man's only thing about it in in the back leading up to it was that Jake uh, had to sh- you know let it let it, Do it himself. just to prove. And Jay, Jake corroborates that and says, "Yeah, I, I did it." But he's like, the catch was for whatever reason, maybe being in front of all those people and everything, and just being scared. But he latched on to Macho Man like brutally, and he had a really tough time getting them to to unlatch. You know, it's like God Dude, damn. it's crazy to say this, but that's something that happened thirty years ago at yeah. this point. Okay. We still talk about it. Dude, it's still to this day like one of the craziest fucking things that I can think of. Like there's a handful of things in wrestling history that like come back to me either for being like nuts or just like mind bl- like dude, the, okay, right off the top of my head, just thinking of a couple things, right? The Undertaker Mankind Cage, Hell in a Cell, not just cuz we were there, but because what it is. Uh the barbershop windows, another thing like that when the rockers broke up. Uh, the macho, the snake thing that we just talked about. So one yeah, of Andre things. Hogan when he the, the shirt twin and refs. Some bleed. Yeah. Well, the twin refs. That's the big one for me. Like my fucking mind was blown. Like I was literally like pissed off. Like this Confused. is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, like as a kid, I'm like this is fucking Andre got the fucking belt. Like what the fuck is that? Like, uh, you know, like a macho winning the tournament at four. Uh, Warrior beating Hogan, you know, like there's just handfuls of those big moments like that. And that was one of them. Like, and it's like I said, some of them were big moments because like title changes. Some of them were big moments because like mankind almost dying. 
And this one was fucking Macho Man getting bit by a real King Cobra. Yeah, that's like the difference. Like TV. you go, you go to the movies, and some of these movies are, are nuts, but you know it's a movie. You know, and, and you're watching live wrestling. You know, especially if you're there, and you know that's a cobra. Like it's not a robotic cobra. <laughs> and it's just, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, give Macho Man some credit for not being completely insane to at least say like you do it first, Jake. You know, but nonetheless, dude, what a crazy fucker. That'd be like me and you, like, hey Ed, we're gonna do this thing for my movie. I'm gonna have to have you get bit by this snake, and he's be like, you do it first, yeah, like you do it first, and, we're, and that's what we do. Like, it's just, yeah, when and you I'm really talk out loud about it, it's like, fuck. and I'm literally watching you do it, and I'm like, god damn it, you know, <laughs> yeah. what? it's like I thought he like, wasn't gonna like, do like it, now it's your so, turn, brother. Yeah, it's like fuck. Now this thing's gonna bite my whole arm off. <laughs> yeah. Like fuck, it's stupid. But yeah, I mean, it's it shows you too, like the kind of lengths. That they would get like that's kind of even surprising to me that Vince would even go for something like that. Well, you know, Vince, he's been through so many different evolutions in all these decades, depending on what, what kind of business he's trying to do, you know, and so, testosterone that he's on, most yeah, likely. Yeah, like who knows? But yeah, they, they, they kind of highlight some of Jake's uh, parts of history, like we're talking about, where he was the Undertaker's first ever tombstone on the floor at WrestleMania 7. When the Undertaker oh, was they, first starting to come up, or that was WrestleMania eight. I'm sorry, because seven was Snuka. And that reminds me too that they brought this up. I was kind of glad they did a whole thing on the whole steamboat getting DDT'd on the yeah, floor. Yeah, he was which, he was like he just wanted me to do it full throttle. And I, he's like, I told you know the classic Eam. He's like, I told him that he's going to get hurt, <laughs> and he just gets annihilated. And, and yeah, have steamboat come on there. He's like, yeah, my whole head felt like it blew up. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus yeah, Christ, these fuckers. Dude, Steamboat used to get fucked up back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) Like, dude, just DDT me on the concrete floor. Like, like, we don't have to do that. Yeah. No, he's like, I could do do it worked. It will look fine. Like, no, just do it for real. Meanwhile, I've tried to literally DDT people and it doesn't work. So, like, (laughs) I don't know. I feel like these guys are kind of working. Well, you're not, uh, what, 6'5, 270, whatever Jake was in 88 or whatever the fuck. Yeah, I guess. 92, I I should say. But nonetheless, I still don't. I mean, maybe I don't. What the fuck do I know? But, uh, but yeah, I mean, overall, I thought this was pretty good. Like I said, there was enough other stuff to to kind of concentrate on and shit. It wasn't just the ugly stuff, but like it is, you know, what, we already knew about this shit. So, like, admittedly, like the first like forty five minutes of this is kind of a chore. Not because it's bad or anything. It's just because it's like reliving some horrible shit that I already know about. So right, I'm like, yeah. I'm not watching this for enjoyment. Between at all. Dark Side of the Ring and then the Dark Dark uh, before that, Beyond the Mat. It's like, yeah, we've heard a lot of Robert's family pedophilia stories, unfortunately, and, and this was another iteration of that, which is always tough to watch and get through. But it is what it is. It's also telling the truth, and like we said, it's like you know, it's part of Jake's life and. They didn't shy away from it either in, on A&E even. So it's just part of it. Uh, another thing that just goes into what I was saying about them highlighting some of the wrestling huge moments that Jake the Snake was involved with in his career was, was of course, his comeback in the late 90s where he was a born-again Christian and he was trying to be oh, sober. Yeah. He's a bit sober. So he had that gimmick. And, of course, that all led to Stone Cold Steve Austin defeating him at the King of the Ring and I believe was it 97 hey Ed 96 and, uh, 96 and then uh him doing the the classic promo that basically created Austin 316 and the rise of Stone Cold and and again like that Rosenfield says he's like you know it's one of those things in history it's always hindsight 
it is what it is. But if Jake the Snake, it doesn't come back as a legitimate born again Christian. And in his yeah. promos, he's talking about Psalm and John three sixteen. Austin doesn't say Austin three sixteen, and you might never have the that specific rise. You know, and that's the thing about history. You can say that about anything. But reliving it in, in a documentary like this, it is a cool point to bring up for sure. Yeah, and dude, as somebody that watched that pay per view live, I can tell you that like when he gave that fucking promo, it was like, oh shit, yeah. It was one of those moments that was right around the times we we went to a live event together, not too far after that, in in the Austin three sixteen shirts had not even been on WWF TV uh, at that time and all that, and they were at the live event and we're like, dude, we gotta get Austin three sixteen shirts. I specifically remember it was a Friday show. We went and bought those fucking shirts, and it was like turn on Raw on Monday, and it's like the whole crowd. Grandma had one, literally, and we were like, "Oh damn!" Like that's when we knew because like there were people with them. Like that was a common thing too back then. Like you usually went to the show in some sort of a wrestling shirt, so like you didn't buy one to put one on. Um, But like a lot of people probably bought them, just didn't wear them. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. But but like on Raw, people are gonna fucking wear them. So. Yeah, tons of motherfuckers had them, and then that was kind of like on from there. But yeah, that uh, that all stemmed from that match with because, like, dude, if you remember that that uh, King of the Ring in the second round, I think it was they did Jake and Vader, and you're yeah, like, and he oh, broke Vader. his ribs, and you're like, dude, Vader, Vader's definitely gonna beat him. Like, Vader's gonna win the King of the Ring, and then they did the shit where he got DQ'd, and it was like, oh wait. And then it was like, Jake might actually win this. Because, dude, Austin was really nobody at the time. Yeah, because so he, like, oh, he fuck, just basically replaced Jake to win. He replaced Triple H after the uh, curtain call with the click. Yep. Because Triple so H was like, getting punished because that was going to be his push. Push was winning, you know, Triple H winning King of the Ring 96. But Austin got it because of that. And then, yeah, due to Jake the Snake kind of putting the Christian Psalms and stuff in his promos and talking about John 316, Austin 316's born. Yeah, it was just it was a really surprising show from a booking standpoint, everything, because it was just like everything that you thought was going to happen didn't. And then it's like, wait a minute, I really don't know who the fuck's going to win. Then Austin won. And it's like, oh, that was kind of weird. Then he cuts this promo and you're like, oh, fuck. Like, okay, never mind. Like, that's great. This motherfucker is about to tear shit up. Yeah, but. And that's what happened. So I, I had this cool. uh, quick clip. Uh, see, I was gonna. I knew I was gonna butcher that. Hey, because it's one of those say that twenty two times fast. Quick quip. But if Jake the Snake Roberts didn't work, but that is like one of the best names in wrestling. You know, Jake the Snake. Because I didn't. The the dude from the Raiders, the quarterback, he Look, stole Kenny it from Stabler. Jake. Stabler. No, that's that's where fucking Jake got it. From. Okay, so he was original, but nonetheless, I mean, you can't be Jake the Snake. And and but his real name, Aurelian Smith Jr., could yep. have been a good second name, which I might have to have Cam edit that because that was a horrible quip. Hey, yeah, my my fault. C- Let's get back. He'd to come out like he'd come out like a toga or something <laughs> like that's just, with that kind of a name. I don't know what else you're gonna do, but <laughs> yeah. but yeah, man, pretty decent episode. So I'm not complaining. I'm looking forward. To what I think next week is China. Yeah, next week is China, and uh, yeah, we can announce because we, we still got rivals to do, so we could talk about the, the next rivals too. But as far as A and E biography, the next subject is the ninth wonder of the world, China. And I'm I'm interested in that because two two weeks in so far with the subject matter, I think they've done a pretty good job. And with China, a lot of it is touchy stuff, so I'm kind of curious to see what they do cover. But like, you would have to think 
that if they're covering all this kind of stuff that, that arises in the Jake one, that they're gonna they're gonna cover China pretty thoroughly. Yeah, yeah, being in the porn industry and the crazy drug, drug issues, had, drug issues, and unfortunate, very uh, untimely passing. But yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm these are pretty good. To see how they handle the whole shit with her and Triple H too. Yeah. Uh, so but we'll see. One thing I wanted to, to mention just to wrap things up with the Jake the Snake head, because I hadn't really realized it because we've, we've discussed this on the podcast uh, with, with just timing of things. And it's just so weird being human and, you know, where we're at in the modern day and age, like everything's just thrown at us and we're in the digital age and all that. Things go so fast. I didn't realize Jake the Snake with the resurrection, resurrection of Jake the Snake and everything was 2012 into 2013. Yep. So he's been sober for 10 years now yeah jake so that's awesome like good for him man because like yeah. there was times you know because they, they showed that footage too which you know we don't need to dive down into the reliving that wrapping up the the review here but they did show the footage of some of the things we watched back in the day like we like got heroes that re- of wrestling heroes of wrestling if people don't know it was this weird random pay-per-view that, that was available and, and a bunch of our friends got it because you know that was still a, a time point of being pretty wrestling starved it wasn't the the streaming age yet and stuff so like any little thing and we're like oh jake's on it and there was guys on the card and our buddy gus got it in his basement and it was like one of the worst overall shows ever and jake the snake came out and just baggy ass satin red pants just beer belly out drunk as fuck drunk as shit blacked out he like used the snake as his dick and was doing all yep. that shit and we were just like it was kind of funny but kind of sad you know and and to to my point to bring that up with what i was saying wrapping this up is the fact that at this point we can say that the dude's legitimately 10 years a full decade sober after after watching all these docs on him and, and watching him struggle is just a good thing to wrap up with that that i'm very proud you know just being a fan of jake the snake that, that he's uh spent the last 10 years sober and kind of reuniting with his family and everything it's just good to see yep i totally agree there so Let's move on now to WWE Rivals. This is Undertaker versus Mankind. Um, no doubt this is this is probably one of the first feuds that The Undertaker ever had in WWE where the, he actually had an opponent that he could put on really good matches with. Um, and it was pretty cool uh, the way that this all started. So uh, at WrestleMania 12, Undertaker wrestled Diesel. And Diesel, of course, played by Kevin Nash. And Kevin Nash was getting ready to leave to go to WCW, but he still had like maybe a month or so left on his contract. So Undertaker would beat him at WrestleMania, and Diesel would end up having one more title match with uh, Shawn Michaels, even though he lost that match. And this is probably why. Uh, it's kind of interesting how they how they did this. So Undertaker probably would have been number one in line, right, to get a title shot. Um, and... During the next night on Raw, uh, there'd been, for weeks, there'd been vignettes running for a character called Mankind. Uh, it ended up being Mick Foley, a.k.a. Cactus Jack, a.k.a. Dude Love, you know, uh, coming into the WWF for the first time as Mankind. And he would debut the night after WrestleMania where he would beat Bob Holly, and he used a move called the Mandible Claw, which was a new move for Foley. He'd never used that move prior. So later that night, The Undertaker was in a match against Justin Hawk Bradshaw. And what happens at the end? Mankind attacks The Undertaker. Now, dude, we'd seen up to this point the Jay, The Undertaker feud with all kinds of big guys and shit. And yeah, like, they show that. And he would, you know, 
it would be whatever. Like it, it wouldn't be anything too crazy. But I remember when mankind showed up and beat the fuck out of them. And it was like, I immediately realized, I was like, dude, they don't, dudes usually don't beat the fuck out of the Undertaker like that right. dude just did. So that was pretty interesting. And it would kind of continue on like that, dude, through the course of their feud. Like, I remember vividly thinking to myself during that feud, like, man, like, and dude, he got some wins on The Undertaker, too. Like, he beat The Undertaker a handful of times during all this shit. So it's not like one of them feuds where, like, Taker would just beat him and then he would have to, like, do crazy shit and they'd keep the feud going. Like, Mankind got some wins on him. And it in 96, that was still really fucking rare. No, for sure. And, and let me just say at the beginning of the review of this, hey, Ed, because you had mentioned to me, you had watched these prior to, to me and we had brought it up uh, when we were talking and, and, you know, you gave me a non-spoiler and you're like, yeah, they're you're, they're pretty good. And, and and you had mentioned like, yeah, take your mankind. It's, it's good, but it's what you would expect. So my point to that is I think I had lower expectations, which I actually appreciate you telling me that because, dude, this was way better than I thought it was going to be, to be honest with you. One of the reasons was, Number one, I haven't relived a lot of the very early part of the feud in a long time. So it was pretty fresh to me for, for not having seen anything recently as far and like we can get into it, but like the buried alive match and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. those matches, when we were watching them as younger kids, didn't stand out as much because they were like kind of gimmicky. And I know that was kind of like the the WWF like pay-per-views at the time because they were doing the in-your-houses and stuff. So they had to ha have kind of like, for lack of a better term, like B-level pay-per-views as opposed to like, say, your SummerSlams and Manias and Survivor Series, your A pay-per-views. And, and so you would have like the kind of gimmick matches with with Taker's character and everything. So, so like I get that style of match, but we were still like, oh, we want to see Sean and Brett and those kind of guys back then. So looking back on it, combined with the behind the scenes that they talk about really made that stand out to me, you know, with, with like, and, and like I mentioned, we could get into the chronology when we, we talk about the buried alive segment part of this and everything. But that at the outset is what I kind of wanted to mention that this kind of, you know, I don't want to say blew me away, but it, I was like way more into this than I expected, which is good. Yeah. And that leads us into their first official matchup, which is oddly enough, as we were just talking about it with the Jake Roberts uh, segment, was King of the Ring 1996. Uh, they had a match that was about 18 minutes long. Um, and again, Taker was having some a, a rough time with him in the match. And it's like as Undertaker was about to tombstone uh, Mankind, he got hit with the mandible claw. Uh, you had Paul Bearer trying to interfere and hit uh, Mankind with the urn. But he accidentally hit Undertaker. Mankind hits the Mandible Claw, and the Undertaker was out. So Mankind actually won in a way that against the Undertaker is probably more impressive than a pin because he basically put him out. Um, and that's and it's weird because I think this would be remembered as so much more of a bigger moment. But look what happened with Stone Cold that night. Yeah. Yeah, things things can outshine you in, in the WWF even when you do something really good. You know, when you're talking about the rise of Stone Cold and what he was doing at the time. Uh, one thing, one thing I wanted to, to mention that, that stood out because it was like around this part of it was the history 
again, behind the scenes between Mark Calloway and Mick Foley. And they yeah. used to ride together in WCW when Calloway was in WCW. And Foley mentions that he stayed at, at the Undertaker's parents' house before. And I, yeah. I didn't realize how far they went back. So that that was something for me. And, and just while we're kind of early on, hey, Ed, I, I think another big point to mention, it, it, this is something we knew, but it's always a cool, such a cool story for me, was that Vince McMahon never was into the Cactus Jack character. As we know, we could think about it. He would be on the opposite spectrum of a Vince McMahon guy who was a body guy. You know, and Jim yep. Ross was always trying to talk Vince into bringing him in. He's like, I'm telling you, him and Taker are cool. He could be the guy that that does this. And and finally, after persistence, Vince was like, All right, but it's on you, Jim. Like, if 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 this doesn't work, it's your failure. Like I told you this this I'm not feeling this guy. And and the rest is history, as they say. But I, I think that's worth putting in here too, because they talked about that. Yeah, and they, they also brought up the fact, too, that like Jim Ross was like, look, I know you don't like him, but he's like, but I knew that if Vince would meet him, he would yeah, love behind, him. Yeah, and behind the scenes, which he did. Like, you know, he, Mick Foley and Vince have a, a storied behind-the-scenes history together to this point. Absolutely. So at this point in the feud, uh, Mankind would continue interfering in Undertaker's matches. They would brawl over the arena and the boiler rooms and in the crowd leading to their second match at SummerSlam 1996, which is a boiler room brawl. Uh, this match has like kind of taken on a legend of its own um, because it's, it, you know, for the time period and everything, there'd never really been anything like this in the WWF. Um, and what they did was they went and had a pretty interesting match that was all backstage, um, which sadly enough would end up being like a, a trope of WWF for years to come after this done generally speaking in a much more poor manner um but i think this is kind of like set that off to them where they were like it put in their heads like oh we could do stuff backstage now and you know so good bad or otherwise it's like this was kind of like a groundbreaking match especially in the wwf this is another point that, that i was saying earlier that, that goes into my commentary where when we were younger, I can remember not being huge on this because we always liked the in-ring stuff. You know, I'm just talking about us specifically, you know, yeah. our, our perception as fans. And looking back on this, and I haven't done it yet because I haven't had the time, but I want to rewatch the Boiler Room Brawl now because I haven't seen it in forever. And I, I don't like know, it. I don't know about you, Hey Ed, but I had no idea. And for those that don't know, they fully cover it in this doc that they shot this on a different day. Yeah. of the pay-per-view because of you know varying different things and like like hey ed just said this was a a groundbreaking match so they were kind of experimenting and they didn't know how it was going to come off so they're like we can get away with shooting this on a different day and mm -hmm. they destroyed each other so much and then the next day they had to come out and do continuity to continue the match into the live arena for SummerSlam that night and the Undertaker had cut his elbow really bad to the point that, like, they were, you know, storytelling, talking about, like, Terry Runnels saw Taker in the back afterwards. And it was, she's like, your arm is spraying blood, Mark, you know, like, and he's like, yeah, my, my, my elbow is spraying blood. And so the next day they're getting ready to start the match and, and Taker of all people. And, and, you know, as an independent filmmaker, I respect this so much. He was bringing up the continuity. He's like, it wouldn't make any sense if I come out and, like, my arm's all wrapped up. He's like, you know, so this dude, because crazy pro wrestlers, re-bloodied up his elbow just for the continuity. Mm -hmm. That was a great story. Absolutely. So, and of course, one of the big things that they had to do uh, as, as per coming out into the ring and uh, finishing the match off 
was also the turn of Paul Bearer for the first time, uh, where he would go with Mankind uh, and actually help him win the match, get the urn, and, uh, you know, again, another part of the feud where Mankind's still winning. Like, yeah. he's progressively winning these matches. He won, he got the urn, and he has Paul Bearer as his manager. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So uh, Vince, Vince Ross, uh, Vince Ross, the witching hour. Hey, you mean uh, Jim, Jim McMahon. Yes, who is the quarterback of the Chicago Bears in the eighties? But indeed, uh, no. Uh, Jim Ross was was right though. Like you know, he's like you know, probably in hindsight, like told you so, Vince. But uh, yeah, Vince seemed to really take a liking to to uh, mankind if he was giving him the kind of push that you're talking about beat and taker at that time was like unprecedented let alone getting the urn getting paul bearer as a manager so and dude he definitely went over vince how cool is this so they do this right and then it kind of gets paused because the undertaker is going to do his shit playing mind games with mankind and in the meanwhile, Mankind's going to wrestle Shawn Michaels for the WWF Championship at In Your House Mind Games, where, of course, uh, Undertaker would be in the casket uh, at I the end of that match. match. Yeah. But, dude, that's one of the best matches in WWF history. It's one of Shawn Michaels' best matches of his career. Um, it might be Mankind's best match, period. Um, so that was kind of a cool break. And, of course, that would lead to their third match between them at In Your House Buried Alive in 1996, which was also the very first ever Buried Alive match in WWF history. And, and like I was saying, that was cool to relive because at the time, it was kind of just like, ah, it's just more gimmick than, than something I'm into and, and everything. But watching this documentary and the, like I was saying earlier, the behind the scenes on how they put it together and then like what, what happened with burying, like they're like, yeah, we didn't realize how hard it was to fill in, to bury an entire like regulation sized grave. <laughs> so like yeah. they sent out every heel on the roster to help Foley put the dirt in. And like, yep. they, they were like, yeah. And you could see Foley's like, he, he's like doing the little kid thing, like a, a center on a football team, like between his legs, like throwing dirt. And, and that was funny. Just hearing those kind of stories from behind the scenes, like not ever knowing that, you know? And then as a fun thing here, uh, this is another reason why I love this feud so much. Um, during that matchup, uh, somebody came to help the undertaker. He would be a masked man known as the executioner who was actually none other than former Freebird Terry Bam Bam Gordy, uh, which is crazy that, that he would even come in and be involved here. Um, but of course, you know, they would of course have a fourth match at survivor series, 1996. This was the match where Paul bear was hung from a cage above the ring to prevent him from interfering. And, of course, this would be the first time since they really started the feud where The Undertaker was able to hit the tombstone and win the match. Uh, of course, the Executioner attacked The Undertaker after the match, and he had a brief feud with The Undertaker uh, where he was just quickly kind of disposed of. Um, and then The Undertaker was able to capture the WWF title at WrestleMania 13 against Psycho Sid. Um, and then one week later, Mankind attacked The Undertaker again set with his eyes on the world title. And that was even uh, Mankind burned the Undertaker with a fireball. And it would lead up to uh, another their fifth match, which was at In Your House, Revenge of Taker, and it was for the WWF Championship. Um, of course, this match would, you know, the Undertaker would keep the belt, 
Um, but I'm pretty sure this is the match where he goes head first into was, the table. It's great minds. It's so funny. Like he like d- I was just going to say that. Thing. He go, it was, which was that table one of the still weirdest, never happened. <laughs> yeah, which is the weirdest way of doing anything. Like to this day, I've never seen a table to, break to de- like that. To describe ever. it on the show, my, Mankind's on the ring apron and Taker runs at him and hits him off. So Foley goes flying off the, the ring apron through just a normal wooden table but he goes like hey ed said basically as if as if he's doing a sailor's dive into a pool like completely in the middle of the table like head first like not like yeah. back first like every other table bump and he just kind of like disappeared like his upper torso is still to this day one of the weirdest bumps ever of course it, it should belong to mankind foley you know <laughs> but i, I was going to say the same thing because that always stood out and then the feud pretty much pauses and they go their separate ways only to come together a year later in 1998, uh, where they renewed the the rivalry once again, interfering in the Undertaker's matches and costing him some wins. And that would lead to the 1998 King of the Ring, the Hell in a Cell, which we were there for in person. I don't think we need to rehash this. This is the famous match where Mankind almost dies several times. He gets thrown off the cage, falls through the cage a couple times. It's completely bonkers and insane. And yes, we've even talked about it in detail on the show before going to the event. It's still to this day probably... And it's let's be honest, Jay, it's not going to change. That's the most legendary wrestling moment that we've ever seen live and that we will most likely ever it's, see it's known. It's known worldwide as one of the top, if not the top, live wrestling matches ever. So, we, and we were there. And, and we mentioned, and, hey, we have talked about it, but we said we, we should do, uh, just, just while we're here, a special uh, talking on the show about it and, and break down our experience because we never did that in detail. So, stay tuned for no, that, folks listening. We did. I don't think we ever did. Did we like the whole yeah. experience of it? Yeah, yeah, because remember they did that thing that was just about the Hell in a Cell. Okay, that was on the network. That just like, shows you 153 episodes. Yeah. I can't remember what the fuck we talk about. That's one of the things that I know in. we we definitely did. I mean, it was a cool thing, but the, the one thing that I will just reiterate too is like there was no qualms about what we saw. Like we knew. After that, like going home, we're like, dude, we saw one of the biggest things that's ever happened in well, wrestling history. I always say when he gets thrown off at the very beginning, and I like that. It's something we heard before, but just from the documentary, they do talk about how Mick is trying to outdo the first one with Michaels, and he's talking to Terry Funk about it, and him and Terry watched the whole first Hell in a Cell, and he's like, man, how can I top this? And Terry Funk was the one that came up with the idea of starting the match on the cell. Mm-hmm. And then Foley eventually evolved that idea into having Taker throw him off. And he pitched it to Taker and Vince for weeks upon weeks. Taker's like, why do you want to die? I'm not being part of that. I'm not doing that to you. You're not going to survive that bump. And like we said earlier, surprisingly, depending on Vince's mood, Vince actually agreed. So Taker talks about getting double teamed by them. And he's like, well, with Vince back and Foley up that he could take the bump. I said, whatever, you know, he could take the bump. So they agreed to it. And they decided to start the match on top and being there and seeing him get thrown off, even though it was the very beginning of the match, as soon as the match started, the two had their entrances. They did do a few punching like chair things. It's probably like three minutes and then he gets thrown off. We all thought the match was over and we were fine with it. We're seeing that bump slash stunt. And they Until say that they got they, off that gurney boy. Yeah. And they say that in the documentary, they're like, yeah, every, I think it's King King's like, yeah, he was laying at my feet. He's like, everybody thought it was over. 
And then, yeah, he, he rolls off the gurney and uh, climbs back up. And, dude, I don't know how well you remember this, but I can tell you a very vivid memory I have from that. So he was getting off the gurney, and then he starts climbing the cage. I've never been to a wrestling event where I've heard, like, the crowd, like... Yeah, Foley even like, talks about that. It, it's kind of like... And it just builds like, up. The, like people were going apes. We were. When I, he, I, vivid, yeah. I still can remember that. I'm telling you, it's dude. 2023. This is in 1998. And I can remember us like hitting each other, you know, like teenagers, like, dude, he's going dude. back up. We thought it was over. I know a direct quote from me that I remember saying as that was happening. Like, I'm like, Foley better fucking win now. Yeah. Like, I remember, and like, people are like, fuck yeah, you better win. Like, people. They show on here that like people were happy that the Undertaker won. That was not our perspective that night. No, we, we all like, wanted fully. Motherfucker, he should have fucking won. He got murdered. Like he deserved to win that match. I get it and everything, but like, yeah, dude. And dude, here's the craziest part, and maybe my favorite part. That's what ended the feud. Yeah, which it should. What What are you gonna it's, do after that? You're right, and it's dude, and to to be. Like, not only did we see, like, one of the biggest moments in, in wrestling history, but it's like we literally saw the blow-off to Undertaker Mankind, which was, yeah. it, that's always been one of my favorite feuds. Like, I love that feud. Oh, I still amazing. love that feud. It's, to me, it will always be Undertaker's best feud. I don't give a shit about any of the big WrestleMania moments. The Brock Lesnar shit, I don't care. The, the Mankind shit was way better to me. Yeah, it's great, man. Six matches, we see the culmination. Uh, and all of them were good and different and stuff. That's what's cool about it. Uh, especially, like I said, you know, not watching any of that stuff for a while, then going back to it. Like, I'll, I might have to go through the whole feud, you know, just while it's in my head. On, well, dude, on the stupid I, cock. How cool is that? Like, that they just started this feud and then, like, it eventually, like, the title weaves into it and then back out of it again. And then, you know, and then they have this yeah, crazy give a year fucking off. blow off. And, yeah. dude, I, and the funny thing is, King of the Ring 98 marked a major thing for our going to wrestling shows and seeing something. And we never talk about it. Do you remember what it was? No. So we go to King of the Ring 98. That happens, right? It's one of the most remembered things of all time. That show was also the very first time that any of us in person saw the WWF championship change hands. We saw under or we saw Steve Austin lose the belt to Kane. Yeah, and the first blood match. Yeah, and no one ever remembers that because <laughs> yeah, the biggest I, moment in wrestling. How are you going to follow that? Happened. They did. And, and once again, for no those that don't know, after a match in which the dude almost died twice, he still, because of the the storyline and everything, he was always scheduled fully to do a run in at the end of the main event. And he still does that. Yep. And he's like basically unconscious because that's another famous thing from Beyond the Mat. He was friends with Larry Blostein, the the director and producer of Beyond the Mat. And within that documentary, he plays the video, the the recording, the uh, voicemail that Foley leaves on his answering machine, just completely out of it. Like, hey Barry, yeah. I, I heard I had a pretty good match. I don't remember it. And he's like, you know, I was very scared for Mick and everything because of that. But yeah, just craziness, man. One of the 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 craziest matches of all time and and yeah hey ed and i were there and and on top of it we have our proof we both still yeah, we have our ticket stubs, stubs and 
eventually dude, my goal is to have Taker and, and fully sign it. Like, like you mentioned, when I brought that up, you're like, yeah, it'd be probably damn near impossible for Taker unless you want to spend a lot of money. But I think that'd be so, so cool to have the actual literal ticket stub signed by both of them and, and frame it, you know? One of the weirdest things about this to me, because it just so happens to coincide with something else that we got to experience. Mick Foley talks about how he, for a long time, didn't like the match and like would kind of get annoyed when people would bring it up. And we saw that firsthand. Uh, the first time I ever met Mick Foley, I like brought up the match and was kind of yeah, like we were together. My books. And I was like, you know, I was like, I couldn't, you know, he's like, everybody says they were at that match. And then I pulled out the ticket stub, which was actually my bookmark in the book at the time. And I'm like, well, I was actually there. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And then, doing. and then remember, I had my, Ohio Valley wrestling t-shirt on. Cause that was not too far when I came back from my tryout yeah. camp and he noticed yep. that and said some, some things and yeah, mix, mix the man. We, we yeah, talked about that cool. other meeting we had with him too, which was hilarious. So yeah, he's great. It's just, but he even said like, you know, talking to the undertaker that kind of changed my outlook on that. And, you know, he was like, now I appreciate it. Well, cause like, remember you know, there was that show they did. It was on A and E as well. When they were, I think they still do it. It's like the WWE treasures and they take oh, them yeah, to the, yeah. the, headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut, where they have a bunch of like the old stuff and everything. It's almost like a, uh, a museum, you know, yeah, the way, warehouse warehouse. And they take him to the, the Helena, the original Helena cell, uh, or the, the Helena cell that he was involved in, like the, the cage, the and cage. Everything. And he gets really emotional, like legit just looking at yeah. the cage. I, he almost died. He knows that. that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like Dude, Taker says in this, he's he like, did. he's like, if he's one inch off on that that bump where the cage wasn't supposed to break, the second bump, he's like, he's dead. He's like, there's no way. I mean, dude, the first one was way more impressive, but like when the second one happened, I remember us just looking at each other, like, dude, what the fuck is he doing? Like, stop. And then he gets thumbtacks. Yeah, like, dude, and, that's the one match I remember seeing, whether it be on TV or in person, where it's like, all right, man, this is too, like, stop. Please, like, I don't want to fucking be, be at the pay-per-view where Mick Foley fucking dies. Like, I'll be very pissed. And it's not a freak accident. Or, it's because he just won't stop doing crazy shit. Yeah, I mean, he even says in this that, like you were alluding to, hey, Ed, Everybody's like Undertaker after the match was over, chanting Undertaker. And Foley's basically half dead or three quarters dead, however you want to put it. And they legit need to get him back on another stretcher. And he didn't even remember that he was on a stretcher the first time. And I think he asked, of course, Terry Funk or, or the, the doctor. He's like, was I already on a stretcher? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, there's no way I'm going on a stretcher twice. So he made it out on his own with like Terry Funk and everything. Like, yeah. And oh my God. The first toughest. Time he was the first time he was on a stretcher, he literally got off of it and climbed the cage. With so I don't think that separated really, shoulder. That doesn't really qualify as a stretcher. You, you know, yeah, you, you weren't stretchered out. Yeah, but that's that's fully for you in his prime. I mean, like Taker said, toughest son of a bitch I ever met. And I'll tell you right now, man. Like, you know, watching wrestling, that that Foley was a big guy, right? But, like, when you see him in person. Yeah, he's like a big bear of a guy. He's a big-ass fucking dude. So just the just thinking of his size going off that cake, like, my God, man. Yes. Like, it's a miracle that he's still here, for yeah. sure. And, and, and but, pretty coherent. He's had his health issues. But, like, you know, I've seen him recently on social media. I mean, he's pretty – I'm sure he str struggles with pain. He will for the rest of his life every day. But, I mean, he gets around. I mean, he's not in a yeah. wheelchair and he's coherent. So it's it's good to see, man. You want you want your heroes to be healthy 
as they age. So it's good to see. Absolutely. So hope you guys enjoyed the breakdown of WWE biography on Jake the Snake Roberts and the second episode of WWE Rivals on The Undertaker and Mankind. We are going to take another commercial break. And whenever we come back, it is the movies that made us, specifically the J. We're going to be talking about 1988's Robert Zemeckis flick, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real podcast. Join us next week for episode 154 of the What's Real podcast. The pro wrestling talk and segment continues with WWE on A&E. Next week, we're talking China and rivals. It's Cena versus The Rock. It's the return of Thursday Night Prime. A double dose of Thursday Night Prime, the most action-packed sequence in podcasting. Ha! This is Timothy James for Goose the Goose here on the Whistler Podcast, the most humorous segment of the show and closes things out. The guys talk about orbs that aren't orbs, couples falling to their deaths, silicone lips from China. What else can you say? It's Goose or Goose. All that and much more next week on episode 154 of the What's Real podcast. It's live IWC Professional Wrestling. Saturday, March 25th at 7 p.m. at Mark's Court Time in Elizabeth, PA. This is 22. 22 celebrating 22 years of IWC also live on IWCWrestling.com and Fight TV. And we're back, and it is time for the movies that made us. First up, The Jay's Choice from 1988, directed by Robert Zemeckis. This is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Toon star Roger is worried that his wife Jessica is playing patty cake with someone else, so the studio hires detective Eddie Valiant to snoop on her. But the stakes are quickly raised when Marvin Acme is found dead and Roger is the prime suspect. Uh, it's really hard to explain this to people who didn't live through it, but in 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was like the biggest fucking deal ever. Uh, I'm not saying it was the first time, but I'm guessing it was probably like the best example of a movie with, you know, like real live action humans and animation mixed together. Um, it was definitely like a technical marvel for the time period. Um one of the things that it, it for me anyways is like this is like one of the first things i remember bob hoskins being in uh just kind of watching movies as a kid um it has a pretty big cast this was a really big undertaking at the time to make a movie like this it just took a really long time uh, it was a very very big commercial hit um i remember seeing this in the movie theaters in 1988 for sure and it's also kind of weird too and it, it kind of it's something that me and you've talked about a bunch of times off the air of the j where when we were kids, there were movies that were like for kids, but also weren't for kids. Like they played to kid and adult audiences. And this is like a really good example of that. And it's probably also a really good example of why it was so financially successful at the time. Exactly. Because that was my first point. Hey, Ed, we say on the show ad nauseum, great minds. 
and I watched this with my kids. I was like, you know, daddy's going to rewatch this. I picked it for the podcast and we watched it over the weekend and they had seen it before, but they didn't really remember, especially my, my younger son. I think he like, we had it on, you know, when he probably didn't even remember because he okay. was like not really wanting to watch it. And then he got sucked in like pretty early on, you know, cause that animation. And, and that's why that was going to be my first point because watching it again, uh, it's been some time since I've watched it. I got the 4k okay. and, uh, I probably haven't watched it in well over a decade and then watching it with them. That is exactly what I was thinking because modern day films, which we were just talking the flow of the show earlier in the the podcast, how fast time goes and you know, Shrek, I was going to (laughs) reference like it was made yesterday, you know, Shrek's like old as hell at this point where we talk, but Shrek, Shrek really did that. You know, Shrek had a lot of adult humor strewn into, you know, a, a kid's kind of film like you were talking about. And, yep. and that kind of brought back a, a lot of that stuff that we saw in the eighties and who framed Roger Ra- rabbit is probably the biggest example of that. Like there, there was one point in the film where like a, a animated cat dies and Eddie Valiant says something about a pussy. Oh yeah. You know, yep. things like that. There was a lot of that that I noticed. Of course, Jessica rabbit as an animated character. Yep. <laughs> Even as a kid, you're like, Man, it's sad to say, but as a horny heterosexual male, I'd probably fuck Jessica Rabbit. She's animated. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point, generally speaking. Well, um, as she says in the film, hey, Ed, you don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Yeah, that is. The and and Eddie Valiant that. says, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's dude. I remember also being weirded out finding out that like Bob Hoskins, dude, like has like an accent, you know, and because in that movie, he's like, you know, grizzled fucking detective guy, and he's pretty good in the movie. Uh, but he's vastly American, uh, in that, like, it's clearly set up of like a film noir kind of a setup with the animation, which is a very weird combination to do. Uh, it's something you wouldn't think would work at all, but it actually does with this one. Um, now one thing I was going to ask you, like, what was your kid's take on this? Like was, and on top of it too, like how the animation hold up to you? The animation holds up great. Cause it's top tier. Uh, the kids really liked it. Cause the animation, you know, it's one of those things, I like, guess why animated stuff is geared towards kids and cartoons. Like my dad, that was kind of before his time, you know, my dad being yeah. in his seventies now. And I just bring that up because he's mentioned that before. Like he can't watch animated stuff. He just can't. You know, because yeah, I thought my, he'd get a kick out of some South Park and, and Simpsons stuff. And he just never he's just he's told me that my whole life. Like, I just can't do it. Uh, it was just a different thing. But my kids, of course, just with the animated aspect, I think that helps carry it. And and as we're talking about the fact that it's kind of somewhat of a dark film, it's a fucking murder mystery, yeah. you know, and then you have the cool aspect of a tune hating detective that Eddie Valiant is. And then, of course, the, the film progresses and, and shows you why, you know, his, his detective partner brother was killed by a tune and everything. And then there's a, a nice plot twist with that, with, of course, the, the always classic and great Christopher Lloyd playing the, the villain and the, and the judge, you know, Judge Doom. That's a great character in this. And, and you know, to boot with, with uh, Judge Doom is his little group of animated weasels. They kind of oh, steal yeah. the show as the animated goose. They're hilarious. Because mm-hmm. they just can't stop laughing and all that, and that that leads to to a big thing with with the climax, of course. But this is the the movie that is the first and only, as we speak here in 2023. Hey Ed, uh, time that cartoon characters from Walt Disney and Warner Brothers have appeared together on screen. 
So that was another big thing too. Like there's a scene towards the end where Eddie Valiant falls out of a cartoon building in, in the place they call Toontown and he's like falling through the air and next to him are Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse up like on with parachutes talking. <coughs> like I'm like, dude, that's probably never going to happen again. You know, we talked no, about it, like- it will not. Yeah, like we talk about the the comic books and stuff, and Sony owns part of Spider Man, and Marvel has to well, deal dude, with that. And there's all kinds. Remember, of, they they wouldn't have any, even been able to pull something like that off for Ready Player One, right? And that was yeah, massive. Ready Player One had a, yeah, and that's Spielberg, and he could only get certain things signed off because you know money money's the thing at the end. And trademarks. Dude, we and, did. We we got really lucky that we saw like the like we were there towards the end of that era, and I even mean like stuff like we remember like the WWF when guys had real theme music like I had the Tiger and shit. Of course, and, the like, Road Warriors. Yeah, and we we see all Man. that stuff kind of evolve to the point where it all got filtered out, and I mean, it wasn't weird because we were kids, but like, dude, that must have been really weird to be an adult during that time period where. You're just used to certain things being a certain way, and it's like, oh yeah, they can't do any of that anymore. Yeah, like, e- oh, ECW is always the classic because Paul Heyman had an in with some exact or whatever. No, fuck. he didn't. He just didn't like nobody ever sued him. That's basically <laughs> okay. What well, it was. there you go. I don't feel we bad all as thought that, but it's like, nah, they they uh, just did whatever. I don't feel as bad then for our first film, UCW, which we used whatever music we wanted. So there yeah, you go. So, exactly. Yeah, as long as you're not making money to get on the radar, I guess. But uh, but yeah, it was definitely a different time, and, that, and that's what was cool about reliving this, and and you know, the kind of whole overall take on it for for something that I remembered as a kid, and that's you know why I, I chose it for the movies that made us because I think we've briefly spoke about this on the podcast. Hey Ed, we're back coming up in the eighties and it was like the advent of the VCR and then the, you know, whole boom of the the home video and everything in the video stores. And I waited like seven years or whatever it was for this to come out on VHS. Cause you, you know, those were the days where you would see it in the theater and then you couldn't watch it again until it was available to rent. And this movie for, for that time period took forever to come out on VHS. And then I remember when it came out, it was like, $35 $35 in like 91 or whatever the hell yeah. it was, you know, cause I, yep. I, I'll never forget the first uh, VHS tapes I ever had was uh, 1990s, you know, Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Batman and who framed Roger rabbit. Like I still remember yeah. that to this day. Those are my fir- very first two actually owned VHS copies. And, and now look at me. Hey, I had a multi-thousand hard copy film collection, you know, but that's where it all started with those two films. Uh, so this was always special to me, but yeah, it's, it, I think that's the, the biggest thing about this. It's such a, a well-made classic movie by a legendary director with Robert Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg's involvement as usual, you know, behind the scenes producing uh, an amazing cast for the time. And, and just the, the fact that it, it's a time period that this comes out of that, as you mentioned, it's just never going to happen again. So this, yeah, this will I, always stand the test of time, I believe. And uh, as as a an independent filmmaker to look at, e- even with like the biggest of biggest budgets and the visionaries upon visionaries working on it, it's still unbelievable how it's put together too. Like that, that's yeah. kind of what I was watching for is like when Eddie Valiant jumps in the animated car and shit like that. And it's just all flawless, dude. It's just well, dude, so cool, so you, impressive. You're never going to see a movie that was like this again that was so painstakingly made because they're just the sheer amount of actual time and effort that it would have to go into the animation at the time. Yep. 
and then to splice it with the movie and everything like it's incredibly difficult to do and they they just will never make a movie that in that manner ever again because they just don't they would use computers and stuff now of course so it's kind of a marvel in that aspect for sure like and you're never going to see that again so it's a it's a movie that's going to stand the test of time just kind of like in the way that like terminator 2 would because it's just such a Major, it's a time capsule kind of thing, too. Well, no, it, it, it's also such a major, like, pinnacle of doing certain things in filmmaking, and it's not done like that anymore. Or I should say Terminator, not Terminator 2. But, like, they're big time stamps of, like, this is, like, the best of the best for this particular year that you could do on a, you know, from an effects standpoint or something like that. Um, and th- that's really important because it's, like, a benchmark in film history for a reason. Yeah, exactly. And and I do believe that uh, for, for those interested, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is available currently streaming on Disney Plus. Uh, so you do you can find it now on a streaming service. Like I said, I ended up buying the 4K because I didn't have even a DVD of it. So I figured, you know, I want to watch it again for the pod, bring it up on the movies that made us. So you know, it was like 20 bucks on, on 4K. Uh, but you know, okay. it looked looked amazing. Um, there's so many highlights from the film. You know, we don't need to get through them. I just had some of them written down. But like we were talking about with how painstaking putting everything together was, and the the one that stands out. And there's a lot of them. Of course, the climax is great. But when Eddie Valiant, um, they're trying to hide Roger Rabbit and at his girlfriend's bar, and it, and it's cool. It's like this really cool setting. It's like this bar by uh, like the railroad tracks and stuff. It's just like a cool atmosphere. Yeah. And the the judge and the That's weasels the come in. kind of exactly. And of. and they get in this bar fight, and it's just so ridiculous. Everything that happens, like doing a bar, uh, animated character bar fight with Valiant, like kicking the weasels in the in the balls, and they're flying across the room, crashing through tables and stuff. I'm like, dude, this shit's so cool, you know. And and that <laughs> and that's another thing, just the overall setting, you know, uh, occurring in what would it be 1940s Hollywood. You know, yeah, and and then the Toontown thing. Not so. easy to do. Like you're None really of that, making your cars. Up how difficult all this has to be, too. You know, yeah, and it was like it was a big already, risk that that paid off. It made like over 150 some million do, back in the eight, eight, late 80s. And I'll be honest with you, I know we can't take ourselves back to 1988 with this kind of stuff, but like that just doesn't strike me as a movie that would do really well at the time period either. And it somebody knew something, but like I would never. I'd be like, yeah, you'd think that would be like. Almost like another fucking Howard the Duck kind of thing where it's like a big budget thing that just comes out and it's like, who is this even for? Yeah, it but just doesn't work. It works the opposite did. way. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that my kids loved is the very beginning is kind of establishing Roger Rabbit as like a toon star. Yeah. So he's in this this cartoon and he's like on, on set and studio and it's like this little baby that he's babysitting that keeps like getting in danger. So like yep. he'll you know he's in the kitchen and he's like climbing the oven and the flames are coming on and Roger Rabbit's trying to you know protect them and all this sh- all these antics are occurring and then it, it shuts down pans out and you see that he's in the studio and the little baby that's like this cute little baby is actually like this wise talking cigar smoking yep. womanizer. <laughs> it always reminds me of that. Unique. Uh, if you remember the old Warner or the uh, the old Looney Tunes cartoon where there's like the the bank robber that disguises himself as a baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like that's, I guarantee you, that's where they pulled it, that from, but it, it's same idea. That's another big aspect, too. This is kind of like a mismatch uh, growing up, you know, as we got to say for perspective in the 80s and stuff of like stuff we grew up on, like Looney Tunes and everything. Yeah. You know, like I said, the involvement of Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and, and seeing all these characters. Like at one point, 
Eddie Valiance in, in Maroon, who's like the producer in its office. And he's like, what the hell is that? And he pulls up the blinds and he's like, oh, it's only Dumbo. And Dumbo's like yeah. flying there. He Another throws peanuts. Thing. Yeah. So uh, th- that's why I had to bring this up, man. It's just uh, – and it's another one like it was highly popular, but again, in 2023, it is what it is. It's streaming on Disney, but a lot of people, I, I feel like, don't talk about it all like that. You know, it's another one of those ones. So you know, I just thought about it and went with it for this because it always stood out for me. All right, good choice there. So we are up against another commercial break, and uh, I'll get back into this when we come back from a break. But it's very strange for me that we picked two movies from 1988, and I'll explain why that's a big deal to me uh, and much more. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, the movies that made us continues with colors from 1988. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real podcast. Hey, Yins, guys. That's right. It's your boy, the J. Once again, as the great Chris Jericho used to say, representing the dub R question mark, the What's Real podcast. And I am here today for local Pittsburgh area independent production company, Churchill Pictures. And the J can admit, for those consistently listening, week to week we have ads for Churchill Pictures. You may be rolling your eyes, but this time, this week, I have a gift for you where you can watch some of our feature films for free for the first time. For those that don't know, Churchill Pictures is based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, established from the bond of two childhood friends. Churchill Pictures envisions creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Check all the information out at churchillpictures.com today. And as I said at the top of the ad, your chance to see their two feature films for free. Just subscribe to YouTube's Churchill Pictures channel. Go to YouTube, subscribe to the Churchill Pictures channel, and you'll be able to watch the full feature film, the 2012 Silver Ace Award winner from the Las Vegas Film Festival, Deference. Deference, the full movie, is for free on our YouTube channel. Then our second feature film, The Unsung, is now available for free on Tubi. Tubi is a free streaming site, just has a little bit of ads, but you can get used to them. Check us out on Tubi. All you have to do is register for Tubi, or if you're already registered, go on ahead and sign in on Tubi and just search The Unsung. The Unsung is now streaming for free on Tubi. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com or YouTube Deference, Tubi The Unsung, Churchill Pictures. We create worlds. And we're back, and it is time for part two of the movies that made us. We're staying in 1988 with director Dennis Hopper's Colors. A confident young cop is shown the ropes by a veteran partner in the dangerous gang-controlled barrios of Los Angeles, where the gang culture is enforced by the colors the members wear. Um, Yeah, directed in uh, 1988 by Dennis Hopper. Uh, Colors was actually a really controversial movie uh, when it came out. Um, It was also one of the, it is probably the first movie to really capture the Los Angeles Bloods and Crips street gangs uh, in a a realistic way. Um, That's why it it holds up, man. It does. And it was also... I'll tell you right now, this is something I remember vividly. The thing that put colors on my map as a eight-year-old kid was the video for Ice T's colors. Yeah, because the, the song, song uh, yeah, it opens and ends it. Yep. And it, it's a good song. It still, you know, pretty much holds up for what it is. 
Uh, of course, color stars Sean Penn as Danny McGavin, Robert Duvall as Bob Hodges, his partner. We got Maria Conchito Alonso's in this. Don Cheadle shows up in this. Glenn Plummer plays High Top, who's OG Bobby Johnson from South Central. Uh, Damon Wayne shows up in this in one of the funniest roles I've ever seen. And the thing is, this movie's pretty layered. Like it's it's interesting because you got obviously the stuff with the street gangs that they're showing you. Uh, the relationship between like this young hotshot cop and the veteran, um, their relationship with the gangbangers and how they try and deal with it. And the thing that's kind of cool about Colors, too, is like you have to realize a movie in 1988, people weren't they didn't really know any of this shit. Like there were some people that might have known, but to like your normal people, this would have all been kind of foreign. Yeah, it went over so, some people's heads even like, like what is absolutely. This? Yeah. And it. And the thing that I liked about this, too, is like I remember all the time when it comes to movies about shit like this, they'd always be like, well, it glamorizes the lifestyle of this or that. And Colors doesn't do that on any side no, of things. They, no, no. There's a scene in Colors that I think holds up really well, and I always remember it. And it's uh, the scene whenever uh, Sean Penn finds uh, Maria Conchito Alonso, like with one of the gangbangers, like after a shooting next door. And like they go through their little spat, but like there's always that portion where they show the people next door and it's like the woman's dead and the husband's like freaking out. Yeah, he's like, why, why? Yeah, like that's a, and it's like with the music and everything, that's like a really, really good scene in the movie that kind of hits home. Just like how fucking loony and pointless all this shit is too. And they don't paint the cops as good guys in this movie either. They're just as conflicted as everybody else. Um, it's kind of a weird dichotomy that they have in the movie, but I like that. I think it doesn't like, it kind of shows the cops, not necessarily as heroes, but like, as guys are like, yeah, we don't really know what the fuck we're doing here either. Like we're not necessarily fixing the world or trying to find the bad guys. And they even show you a lot of stuff with the gang members. It's like, are they bad guys? Or are they just people that live in squalor that don't really have many options? Like, and that's pretty poignant of a, you know, manner to be for a movie that came out at the time. Uh, my understanding was the original script uh, was written uh, for this to take place in Chicago. Yeah, be but more about drug dealing than gangs. Yeah, and whenever Dennis Hopper jumped into it, he was like, no, we're going to re all redo this about the gangs of Los Angeles. So um, because of that, it stands up the test of time as a pretty interesting uh, you know, like snapshot of the time period as far as L.A. gang culture goes, because there's not a lot of movies that I thought covered that very well or to the authenticity that this one did, where the movie was completely shot in and around Los Angeles with the cooperation of local gangs so they could actually do it. Yeah, which is huge. I, I wanted to I know you hit letterbox sometimes. I, I found like a little blurb I wanted to read that was was really good uh, from IMDb. It was JLDMP1. My generation remembers these times. This is before Rodney King and the riots, before the relentless moralizing of Spike Lee and John Singleton. Back then, urban gang warfare was comfortably distant. This is before cell phones, bling, rims, before the thug life became a marketable commodity. Colors is distinctive for Hopper's tight focus, his honest approach, and complete lack of sentimentality. The world depicted here is horizontal and filmed horizontally. It is ugly and unironic and in a way egalitarian. There are no courts or lawyers. Every introduction of ethics is literally shot down. Yeah, dude, that's, down there. that's a very, very good point because the one thing that's so interesting 
And I noticed this really like rewatching it this past weekend for the, the segment here. There is no courts or judge involvement. You see a ton of like, it's like the revolving door of like the local county jail. And, you know, like just because like nobody really involves like a high level criminal. They're just street criminals. Like it, the cops are assholes too. Like the cops don't even like each other in a lot of the instances. Uh, at the crux of it, you're dealing with two partners that don't really get along, but who are trying to get along. Um, so like there's that conflict. There's the conflict of how those two officers deal with people on the streets and how they don't agree with the way the other one does it. Um, which let's be honest, dude, I can't remember too many movies outside of something like a Serpico or something like that, where they're really showing you like just even with like base level street officers where like a lot of them are just kind of like cowboys and shit. There's a, a raid in the movie where they go to the wrong fucking house that creates another problem. Um, just like, you know, stupid mistakes made by the police, stupid mistakes made by gangbangers, the gangbanger culture of like bringing in young kids and how drugs were fucking how people made their money at the time. And like a lot of this is done through like very unjudgmental lens. It's kind of just like, this is what's happening. It doesn't say it's right, wrong, or otherwise. It's just presenting it to you, which I think is one of the biggest strengths that Colors has. Yeah, ironically, a film called Colors, and they, they make it like really gray, which which is great. Yeah. But, but that's what's really cool about Robert Duvall's character, Bob Hodges. He's kind of like, you know, exactly that. He's a very gray character, like you're alluding to. He's taking Sean Penn's character, Danny McGavin, under his gun. So it's one of those classic dichotomies where you have, like you said, like kind of the cowboy cop, like I'm trying to change the world. Duvall's like, no, man, this is, there's a whole, whole process to this, you know, because it's, it's one of those things where, you know, Hodges knows some of the gang members personally, and he has certain deals in place he already and, has and, a, and nothing a even shady on the streets with him yeah like nothing even shady like or like back-end shit he's not like a corrupt cop he just kind of plays the game that he has to you know that, like that's what he's trying to teach mcgavin and, and, and like their their relationship is great and of course you know freaking 1980s sean penn and robert duvall chemistry uh, really makes this movie i mean they obviously carry it and, and that's that's awesome you know there's there's so many amazing parts in this Don Cheadle's character in this is amazing for him. Like he is just a straight hardened fucking gangster in this movie, you know, Ruthless just, just motherfucker. yeah. Just knowing Don Cheadle the way he is now, like, you know, just early on in his career, just, yeah. Just playing this ruthless rocket gang leader character. Dude, uh, D Damon Wayans plays like a completely spaced out gang. Yeah. This, which is, it, which is funny knowing who it is, but like, I do remember seeing this movie for the first time not knowing who he was and like that character's fucking disturbing like he's just always high as fuck yeah and just kind so of he's like doing weird shit he's out of his mind like that's an interesting kind of and you know i'll be honest with you and just throw this out there the jay considering his knowledge of, of this type of stuff that seems like a character that dennis hopper was very big on like you, he wanted to put like the spaced out drugged out gangbanger in the movie like because that is a character and it also kind of shows you the dangers of that lifestyle because those those are the kind of dudes that are in these gangs fucking out here murdering people and shit because they don't even know what fucking planet they're on. Like, especially back then with Angel Dust and PCP and shit like that, that was like a, a thing. And talking about Damon Wayans being a, a character as T-Bone, as a show stealer, you know who really stole the show for me with my rewatch? Because I, I mentioned to you, hey, it's been 
hell of a long time since I've seen color. So it was a great choice because as I do for the show, you know, rewatching it just the other day, uh, this was, uh-huh. this was streaming on HBO max as, as we always like to shout out for those listening, uh, you know, with the streaming services to catch it, but it's, it's frog, the Latino gangster played by Trinidad oh, Silva. Yeah. Yep. He, he, he was great in this and, and he's, he's pretty much the leader of the most freaking diverse gang, which I love that. Cause you have the, the bloods and crypts in this. It's the barrio, but then you have the barrio that has like the black dudes. They have the dude that played, um, Mordecai from Children Nick of the Corns. <laughs> yeah, yep. who's who's a redhead trying to talk like a Latino gangster. Dude, just just throwing a little piece out there. Did you notice the other gang member? Uh let's say the big the, black the, dude? No, no, no. Okay. The other one. The other Hispanic dude. No. The one that like when whenever they jump in the young dude, he's he's the one that always has the fedora on. Yeah, yeah. The brother. The little brother. Do you no not him. Okay. The other one. He's older. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. Who is that? That's Gerardo. Do you know who Gerardo is? No. Remember Rico. Oh my God. Yes, Suave. I do. That's wow. it. So before he did that. Yeah, before so, they were famous. Yeah. hundred percent. Like but but dude, you, you brought up uh, Trinidad Silva, dude. He has one of my favorite lines in the movie where there were he was like He's getting out of prison and they're like, you're under arrest. And he's like, for what, Holmes? And he's like, you got unpaid parking tickets. And he was like, I was about to pay those, man. And then he was like, well, do you want to pay him? He's like, shit, Holmes, I got more time than money. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just goes to jail. Dude, <laughs> let's let's all uh, throw this out there from the What's Real podcast. It's a official What's Real podcast drinking game. Take a shot every time Frog says Holmes and you'll be You will die in 30 <laughs> seconds. And, and uh, another, I think it's time, Hey Ed, we got to throw okay. in the, one of the funniest, most classic jokes in a film, in film history here. And Quite uh, possibly my favorite. When, when my son's you know. of the right age, he's only nine as we speak, so I'm not going to throw this at him anytime soon. But let us know Bob Hodges as he tells Danny McGavin. He goes, uh, so there is these uh, two bulls. And they're looking over a field of cows. And the son says to the father, hey, dad, let's run down there and fuck one of them cows. And his dad goes, no, son, let's walk down there. Fuck them all. <laughs> yeah, fuck them all. <laughs> and, and it's great because it's full circle. We're at the end. Uh, again, folks, we always say this. It's pretty much jokingly. Uh, you know, this is a movie as, as Hey Ed has been over since 88. So spoilers are here. Uh, but yeah. Bob Hodges uh, passes away in the line of duty. And the, one of the last scenes is Sean Penn. What a Penn's. great death scene, by the it way. It is a really good like the death way scene. He, it's the, sad. Like how he, he's like trying to Dude, talk, he does, talk about acting. Like, yeah, he's like, just tell my wife dude, I love her. Just get, I've always known that Robert like, just is a great actor. Don't yeah. get me wrong. We've all known that. Like, it's not a big fucking secret. But, like, dude, the older I get, anytime I see him in something, oh, I'm he's like, a beast. man. I'm like, dude, he's better than people even thought. Like, yeah. one of the all t- Like, dude, just. Look at the like he always looks the same, but his range is crazy. Yeah, that's like, a good, it's, yeah, it's exactly. fucking weird. It's kind of like Ed Harris is like that to me too. But you're always right. looks the same, but the range is fucking wild. Yeah, that's a great, great example, a great uh, comparison. But you're right, dude. That's one of the. I mean, I'd have to say shit. One of the better death scenes I've seen in a while. You know, it's really good. Yeah. Reliving it, but uh, but yeah, it, the film kind of wraps up with Sean Penn moving on, where he's now 
the more veteran cop and now he has a younger you know cowboy under him you know and, and he and tries dude, to say the bull joke and flubs it it's it, it's a fun, it, he, sean penn's really good at like there's a like from like like he was always good don't get me wrong but like that like 86 to like 92 sean penn is like super underrated to me like there's some really good shit in that time period with him like at close range yeah bad this. boys even and casualties of war the casualties of war slept on you will oh, yeah. by the way hear me bring up casualties of war on this show at some point because yeah, i love that fucking movie. movie yep um but like yeah he was doing some really different shit he's really good in this one in the role that they have him in uh, I wanted to bring this up. I know this is your wheelhouse, the J, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, really good tagline for this one. 70,000 gang members, 1 million guns, two, two cops. cops. Yeah, that's in the, the poster one is in the heart of our cities, people die for wearing the wrong colors. And, and I, I mentioned to you off air, my kids kind of stumbled in on this and they didn't really watch this with me, but they were like, Kind of interested. There was like some action scenes, like car chases and stuff. They're watching a little bit, and I think my son was like Ooh. playing with some guys, and they were mentioning like a little bit about it. And I was like, I, I gave him a little mini lesson on growing up in the '90s in high school and the Bloods and Crips, and I'm talking to them about the Bloods and Crips and everything. But uh, really interesting Dude, time period and a great depiction in this film. I wanted to mention this too, and this is something that really hit home the last viewing. Man, like during some of those chase scenes. Uh, they're running a camera in the backseat of the cop car. And like, it's really fucking good. Yeah, like, it it's is. a good way to like have an intense fucking chase where you feel like you're in the car with them and shit. Like, it's like, there's that one, you know, like in movies, they always do this where like, you know, cars are coming around a corner and they do a thing where they fishtail the ass end out and they like straighten it out and keep going. Like they do that in this movie while you're in the backseat. Which creates like a really fucking cool shot that I think like if you're kind of paying attention or not fully immersed, like it might just you might just miss it. But like I noticed that and I'm like, dude, Hopper wasn't fucking around in this one, man. Like it's I get why Dennis Hopper didn't direct a ton of other shit, but like I do kind of understand why he did this at this time. And it's like, you know, he managed to do something really different than than what you'd think he would do. So, you know, I it just feels like to me, this is like kind of like the wild spirited Dennis Hopper making a movie like this. And it just, everything comes together and works really well because of that. I uh, did great as a director, man. This is uh, one of our classics. As we say, that's why it's on the movies that made us and your choice. Hey, Ed, uh, definitely a late 80s classic. And, and you mentioned earlier too, it's just cool because the film's book ended by the song Colors by Ice-T and... It's just uh, such a cool package and a cool movie, and it was great to to revisit because it's been some time. So great, great choice. And dude, just personally, it's funny how this worked out with two movies from 1988 for me. Um, 1988 was such a big year for me with like music and movies, and these two movies were movies that I seen in this time period. That I mean, I was a kid, so. To be interested in something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Colors. On <laughs> yeah, the other right. Hand, it says a lot about is, you. Yeah, it's kind of weird. But like I was, it kind of shows you my point. Like I was discovering a lot of shit at this point. Um, and that's still when, like, you know, I was enamored with movies coming out uh, too. So it was just really cool. It's just a really, really cool time period for me between going to the theaters, renting a lot of stuff, um, just discovering a lot of different music and, you know, buying albums and shit like that too. 
Um, but this was like a big point of discovery for me during this time period as far as like shit that I would be into artistically many years later. So um, it was kind of nice to go down that wormhole and revisit that because it just always puts that nostalgia in my head for that time period that I had where it was just like everything that I was finding was like new and cool. And shaping and different. What is yeah, this? Your taste. And yeah. And interest. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really, really started laying the framework for you know, a lot of the shit that I like to this day. So it was pretty cool. Like 88 was a good year for that kind of stuff for me. So it, it was nice to get reminded of that. So that's why 1988 was such a big deal to me and why I mentioned it earlier. So, um, but that's it for the movies that made us this week. We are going to take another quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show and talk some goofs. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. What's the most action-packed segment weekly podcasting? Thursday Night Prime. What segment weekly podcasting do the hosts literally put their lives on the line? Thursday Night Prime. Join us each week in the month of March for the most action-packed weekly segment in podcasting where Hey Ed and the J look back at all kinds of weirdo B-action movies. It is Thursday Night Prime. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Goofs. And we're back, and it is that time once again. So the Jay, what do we got this week on the Goof Front? Uh, we're here on the Vista. Hey Ed, it is beautiful, and slowly but surely, knock on wood everywhere. Hey Ed, I'm knocking on my Pinocchio-like penis as we speak. That we're close to spring, <laughs> as this drops will be in March. It's March movie madness here on the What's Real podcast, and yes, the Lagoon is looking beautiful. And Cam shut down a bunch of our ideas after the failed organic penguin farm that popped up in recent weeks, and we had to dismantle. And so we just have the classic lagoon uh, setting that we typically have, which over there on yonder here at Dusk Head, there it is, the waterfall of goofs. Welcome to episode 153 GRG. And I just had to start off with this because we were laughing about this, but I figured it's a good way to start off. I had caught wind of it and had sent it to you already. So you know what I'm talking about here where NBA star Zion, uh, the comment was, I just want Zion to get healthy so he can stop dressing like this on the sideline. Your boy is wearing a denim jean jacket over a yellow turtleneck, and the pants are pretty much indescribable. They're tan with a, I was telling you, it's like a sex machine from dust till dawn like cover over his crotch. Dude, it's this motherfucker looks like a creator wrestler, but somebody just did whatever the fuck. Yeah. Like, uh, put him in a turtleneck, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him a jean jacket. So it's like, I'm giving him brown, weird pants. Yeah, like... And that's it, his it, outfit. It, it's almost like he's... It looks like they're chaps, but they're not. Yeah, I don't I don't know who approved this. If it, like, yeah, we were saying that. It must have been his stylist, and he's just... Then like, fired him. Yeah, I think, I think he did fire them. them after this. Good. He should have fired them as soon as they put him in the outfit. Yeah. Fuck. But, I mean, he, he looks absolutely horrendous. And uh, indeed, like like somebody said, because I was wondering that, too, because I know, you know, we talked a little bit uh, about the NBA last week, and I know you're more in tune with the NBA than I am. And I, and I follow casually. But the one dude was mentioning for Zion, I want to know his injury to games played stats. And that's a good yeah. point, because that well, dude seems like he's hurt a lot. It doesn't. You know, it's fucking lot. weird. If you notice this, I don't know how much how well you remember this, but do you remember where Anthony Davis played before he went to the Lakers? 
No. Pelicans. Okay. Same team. Yeah. Uh, same shit happened with him. So it's, it's like they're partying in New Orleans. Well, it's like their training staff apparently sucks. And there's a whole thing with that. Like, I don't know if that has necessarily something to do with this, but I was like, I was pissed when they got the pick for Zion because I'm like, they just got rid of their superstar because they flubbed a fucking injury. Yeah, and that's they're bad. getting this dude. And now it feels like they're doing the same fucking thing. It's, I don't know. It's weird. Like, he's a really good, like, dude, he averages almost 27 points a oh, game. Oh, he's, he's a beast. Play. That's what I thought. That's what I'd ask you about that. But yeah, they're like, uh, I just don't. You, you have to have foot surgery. And he's like, wait, my foot's not even injured. Yeah, they're weird. I don't get it. I know that he's had weight issues and stuff, but like, that's another thing too. Like the team, they can't get you fucking somebody to get your weight under. Like if I was, if I ran the team and I was paying him that kind of money and he was our best player. Yeah, it's like, I'd just like, eat well, what we give you. We can. Here's a chef. Have home cooked meals that are healthy. Yes. Like we're going to make sure you're all fucking set. Like it's yeah. never going to be a problem, dude. Don't worry about it. Dude, I don't know if you caught but, this. This this one had me cracking up. It was like this big viral story, and it just got shut down. Like a, you know, I was gonna say a balloon going out of a fart. Like, what kind of an analogy is that? But go with it. Yeah, I get it. A, yeah. a hollow metal orb, just under five feet in size, has been discovered on Enshunama Beach in Hamatsu City, Japan. Uh, okay. The authorities, as of uh, like a week ago, had no ideas to what it was. So there's all this speculation about this mysterious orb that washed up on it's, a beach in it's Japan. It's the tall man. No, it's a fucking buoy. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm like, that's where we're at nowadays. Where like it goes through this whole viral thing. That's why you can't believe shit. Because if you read the first this thing, is... you're like, oh, there's a mysterious. That's like we, we did it on Goose for Goose before. There was those mysterious, whatever the fuck they were, like those weird goddamn things popping up. And like we had this big story and it was kind of freaky and then it just goes away. Yeah. It's like it's either a fake thing or they just never figured it out. Or it's it like out. aliens are here and they're just like, whatever. Well, most of these stories just make me want to quote the Price is Right music and go. You can quote that on this next one. This is our viral video of the week. I just sent this to you, Hey Ed, and I want to get your take on the question that's asked. What's the backstory on this? Wrong answers only. And it's a couple, a heavier set woman and what looks like a skinny dude. And they flip out of a fucking balcony in what looks like is like a European city. Did you see this viral video? Jesus yeah. fucking Christ. The dude's dead. He doesn't move at all because he kind of falls. He does like a snook a splash onto the sidewalk. The chick at least kind of, I don't know. She landed on her face. She might be done. Oh. I don't even like... Okay, I'm trying to rewatch this yeah, to, to see even what, what, understand. I think he was trying to put her in like a judo, like a uh, jujitsu hold or something. I don't. Okay, they, I need to see this one more time. As we joke, it's our inside joke on GRG for those listening. We're, we're not a video show, at least yet, and we play viral videos. Uh, but for your audibles, uh, these two people are on this balcony and they crash through the railing Dude. and plummet <laughs> to the sidewalk below. About two stories. Do you know what the funniest part to me is? That she almost got Mick Foley'd with the chair. It's like you just no. It's not even the that. chair it's falls the, too, but it missed her. The, and it's like they're like it's like, <laughs> and then it's like ta-ting, yeah. Ping, ping. Like we like say with storm. so many of our viral videos, it's like you want to see the aftermath. Like okay, the stunt was great, but like what the fuck happened after this? And like I mean, who's videotaping it too? Like there, there is. This absolutely no way that they're just fine no. i'll say that 
Yeah, because like, you could see her no face. Way. She she at least at least broke her ribs. And like I said, the dudes he doesn't move and he fell on his back. So um, you know, rest in peace to these two European individuals. But you know, if you what do you say all the time? Hey Ed, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I don't know why you're trying jujitsu rolls on a fucking balcony with a three hundred and thirteen pound woman. Apparently one that has railings with the strength of fucking spaghetti noodles. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this question, hate head, here on GRG one fifty three. Do you want to send your faraway lover a kiss by chance? No, I'm good. Okay, because if so, a Chinese contraption with warm, moving silicone quote unquote lips appears to have just be, be just the answer. Yeah, especially if you want to come across like a fucking serial killer. Well, I just sent you the pic. You should see it. It's a uh, very, very disturbing contraption. Yeah, uh, this this comes across like this, someone's going to think you sent them a sex toy. I'll just be honest. This Chinese kissing device lets you smooch over the Internet, but no tongue. Mm, I'm going to pass very hard then. The first quote, whoever's making that fapping sound, quiet down. I think he originally said flapping sound, LOL, but good meme. <laughs> so, it's true. Yeah. Our sponsor, ladies and gentlemen, the interwebs. The interwebs. Next up, what does this mean? Hey, Ed, breaking, and this is more cocaine bear news, which has been a big all star on GRG here in 2023. As Marvel CMU head Kevin Feig is quote unquote considering bringing the cocaine bear into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay, sure. <laughs> What, it, what I could say, hey, Eel, is it means it will be in Marvel superhero movies in some capacity. Like Cocaine Bear will make an appearance in a Spider Movie Man movie or something. So there, yeah. there you go. Take take that for more, what it's worth. More original content for comic books, everybody. <laughs> <sighs> Next up, let's learn about a new definition: Dick Chicken. Have you ever heard of Dick Chicken, hey Ed, or played Dick Chicken? No, but I have heard of Dick Slayer. That's right. Yeah, I was talking about Dick Slayer. <laughs> Dick Slayer not, probably played Dick not, Chicken. Not Dick Slater. Dick Slayer. Slayer, yeah. Uh, Dick Chicken is a game played by two presumably uh, straight males where each player pulls out his penis and stares at the other player. The one whose That's penis deep. moves first is declared the loser and thus ridiculed and called a gay for a minimum of two hours. So I know why. I, very offensive. I I we're confused. not homophobic here on the show, but we're reading the top definition of dick chicken here. So to all my gay I friends, you, love you. I thought you were talking about the chicken sandwich you get at Dick Donald's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the first thing it says, hey, guys, who is up for a game of dick chicken? So, so yeah, you have to take your dicks out and stare at each other. And if your penis moves, you lose. Yeah, so we not, not going to be doing that. Yeah, I'll talk to Cam. Maybe we can do it for, for something viral, you know. Not going to continue doing the podcast with people that do shit like that. You you can <laughs> rent shoes now, hey, Ed. Did you know that? Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, which I will never do. I'm, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm not broke, but yet obsessed with hype. That's yeah, uh, you could rent a pair of Jordan 3s, Jordan 1s, even a pair of Jordan 11s for $19.99 per week. Or pay 53 payments to eventually own it. Uh, and there's some other easy ownership options. payments? Yeah. Bro. Yep. That's how what they get the you. What the fuck? Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. So if you want a pair of Jordans from, say, Rana Center, 
it's it, it's nineteen ninety nine a month. No, nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine per week. Oh, okay. So it's twenty four eighty dollars. Wait. So no, but it's nineteen ninety nine times fifty three, which means you can get your own pair of Jordans for just over one thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, the fuck are we doing? What are we doing here, people? Like, if you're renting, fuck. Like, no, this is fuckery. As the I fuckery, say, hey Ed, dude. constantly, twenty twenty three, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, maybe you can go rent a Bentley, a girlfriend, and a fucking bit of self respect too. I which you can. All those things. You can. I, I didn't know you could rent self-respect. I would have did that years ago. We talk about our, our sponsors and, and the interwebs and everything else. And this is a big one here in the city of Pittsburgh with Heinz Ketchup, of course, the, the home of Heinz Ketchup here in the Steel City. Well, Ketchup helped this man survive weeks at sea. So now Heinz wants to buy him a new boat. He's a, a sailor. Hey, you Dude, they said, like, I saw this thing on the news about this because, of course, this is the home of Heinz Ketchup. Yep. So they're asking people on the local news, like, do you think you could survive however many days just eating only ketchup? And everybody's like, absolutely. I love And I'm like, like, I love Heinz Ketchup, bro. But, like, no. Yeah, good No. I don't want to even think about that shit. He's, like, putting the ketchup on a rat that he broke its neck. You're just drinking ketchup like you're, it's, the, it's the Pine Barrens episode of the fucking Sopranos. You're just like, I'm surviving off ketchup. Like uh, Heinz, on, Heinz like, is suggesting fans use the hashtag on Twitter. Hashtag find the ketchup boat guy because they can't find him. They're trying to give him a boat. And, and we've been talking about with some of these names that we uncover on Goofs or Goofs. We always have our aliases that we use at hotels when we travel. Uh, hey, Ed kind of ruined it because he's on a podcast and gave his away as Ron Mexico. Although yes. that, of course, came from uh, the infamous motherfucking uh, Michael Vick. Michael Vick. But Man. this dude has one that I'm stealing. This is another one I'm stealing. Hey, Ed. The sailor that was stranded and lived off ketchup is Elvis Francois. No joke. Uh, uh, I was kind of hoping you were going to tell me it was Dick Seaman. I know. Like, that's Dick Slayer. One. Like, what's the irony? That's Yeah, that's true. But yeah, Elvis Francois, uh, they have a picture of him receiving medical checkup after being rescued in Cartagena, Colombia. So shout out to Romancing the Stone. Remember there in Cartagena? Let, <laughs> put it this way. Uh, I don't have to remember that because I did something associated with work today that had to do with There you go. <laughs> it's so it's a Full circle. But yeah, Heinz is asking the public to help contact them so they can buy him a new boat in celebration of his successful rescue and living off of ketchup. But the man is, he was lost at sea and now he's lost amongst the interwebs, which is really tough to do. So Francois is a, a tricky Good bastard. for him. Yeah, it's a slippery fuck. Uh, next up, I just thought this was, was just kind of a, a cool list. So this is 2022s as we sit here, first quarter 2023, 2022s highest paid entertainers. Hey, Ed. And I'm not going to okay. put you on the spot and ask you like who you think because you you know you're going to be throwing out there The Rock or Tom Cruise people like that. Let me throw out to you the top five highest paid entertainers of 2022, starting with number five. Of course, two of our boys, close friends of the show, we quote them all the time. Huge fans since we were kids. James L. Brooks and Matt Groening, of course, 105 okay. million. Wow. Okay. Followed by at number four, makes sense. Trey Parker and Matt Stone. 160 oh, million. Wow. Hmm. Followed by Tyler Perry, of course. That makes sense. 175 million. The top two highest paid entertainers of 2022, Sting, not the wrestler, 
the the dude um, from uh, you, the Bride of Frankenstein remake. So, so you mean you're talking about the musician, not a man called Stan, right? From the police. Okay, got it. Two hundred and ten million. Drum roll, please, Cam. Twenty twenty two's highest paid entertainers, Genesis. Oh yeah, they went on a tour. <laughs> Two hundred thirty million. Phil Collins, who I like, I like Phil Collins. So good for you, Phil. I don't even think he was able to finish because he had some health problems. Well, our thoughts are with you, Phil. But you you made two hundred thirty million, or at least your band did. So uh, yeah, that's what he. That's what he was talking about all those years ago when he said about the air in the night. You know, like yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. What, saw two hundred thirty million dollars worth of concert revenue coming through in twenty twenty two. And now I'm going to throw you a man that you're going to hate, Hey Ed, which is why I put this Great. on as the caboose of GRG 153. His name is James Stinson. So remember the name because that's the name of your new arch rival. He has hit a milestone in his love for all things Chick-fil-A. He's eaten at the fast food restaurant for 1,000 consecutive days, except for Sundays, of course. Well, then it's not consecutive then. Yeah, what a piece of trash Stinson is. So he... So he eats there six days at a time. A Texas man then, must really like waffle fries. He's eaten at the fast food restaurant for 1,000 consecutive days, except for Sundays. They don't count. Was going for a record number of visits by going to a Chick-fil-A no matter where he was every morning and said the idea was from a man from New Jersey who visited a Chick-fil-A for 100 consecutive days. So yeah, with his wife Libby by his size, I'm done by his size. I'm done. Yeah, by, I mean, well, makes I, that sense, makes sense. Though. Yeah, unless he gets like grilled chicken without the bun, he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, say he doesn't. Yeah. He's eating shitloads of waffle fries and weird shit. I guarantee it. I mean, he's in his seventies, so he's lived a full life. So he's probably just like, oh well, that make, that actually makes more sense because there's no way any other normal fucking person would have enough time to go to goddamn Chick Fil A daily for a thousand fucking days or however many it's been. Yeah, his big quote Ugh. was, uh, I think Chick-fil-A is a great organization. If they're open, I'm here. Um, let me translate for you. It's called, I really hate gay people, so I thought this was a good idea. Yeah, what, that's, a, what a piece of trash. No, no, I guarantee you there's no fucking person that's normal. I just really like their food. No, you don't. Yeah. You don't. Their food's fine, but they're busy as fuck all the time. We're going to set like, up like a, a prank that, that will cause his death and have we'll, we'll have uh Brandon Frazier from the whale back in his prosthetics and have him above the uh, Chick-fil-A entrance. Like they used to do the water prank, but the whale falls <laughs> on him. <laughs> yeah. Like, there you go, Stinson. Now, now it's a, a thousand and one days to your fucking tomb. You piece of shit. I'm delirious. Let's wrap it up. Hey, Ed, that's GRG 153. And as I say to my bromada from another momada, between orbs that are bullshit, a couple falling to their death that we just watched and broke down, silicone lips from Japan, everything else we covered. I'm on fumes. We all know goofs are goofs. So you can listen to us on all your favorite podcasting platforms each and every week, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and each and every week at churchillpictures.com. If you're listening on iTunes, feel, feel free to give us a five-star review. It helps out the algorithm and gets more eyes and ears on the program. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have something you'd like to add to the show, email us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get ahead of here, Jay, revving it up so the Jay take it away. Revving it up like I'm a, I'm a mysterious orb from Japan. Hey, Ed, but lo and behold... I'm just the J.
What are you going to do? Love the show to our producer and all the normal shout outs that we have to do with everything we put into this. Cam, the man, the wizard behind the boards himself. Thanks for what you do, Cam. That consistent, constant weekly 16K sound. We appreciate it. Hey, y'all, another fun ride on our journey, man. Always loving it. The week-to-week adventures of the J. Hey, Ed, and the Wiz on the What's Real podcast. Let the train roll on. And as I lead the charge, all my peeps out there, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, stay safe, stay healthy. You'll hear the J next week. So that's about it for us here this week on the show. Shout out to our producer, Cam, yada, yada, yada. Nobody beats the Wiz, the J, clang, clang. Clang, Undefeated tag team champions of the podcasting universe. So that is it for us this week here on the show. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 154 and beyond. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's Real Podcast.